Went and visited my mom. That's so funny. I'll tell this story. So my mom, I've been telling you, she's making like really slow progress, but still a little progress here and there. So now she can take her right arm and wipe her nose with it, kind of wipe her eye with it, which is, sounds not like not that much, but it's actually a really big deal. And then towards the, <laughs> towards the end of my visit, I was like, I hope you enjoyed seeing me today, Mama, and I hope you... I hope I uh, hope I didn't bother you too much or whatever. And she did her. She, I can't do it like my mom does it, but my mom has a way of, even when she was all the way well, of reacting to something just by raising her right eyebrow, like reacting to one of my sarcastic jokes. She would always raise like her right eyebrow and kind of look at me or whatever. Uh, so she did that. <laughs> she raised her right eyebrow uh, at me when I said that. Um, so yeah, she's getting a little better. It's tough, man. I know she gets frustrated sometimes too, and it's just really slow and you don't really know how, you know, how much she can come back. So, uh, yeah, I got to stay with her for almost two hours, came back, figured we'd do a little bit. I mean, we got tortured this morning, so I had to come back and do something, uh, as far as the, uh, afternoon session goes. Now they're on recess right now. Um, so why don't we, while they're on recess, check in on what happened while we were gone. Okay. Your specialty is in pulmonology, critical care, things of that nature. Correct. And then you also have... It is funny how she can just do it with the one eyebrow, and it's the same motion she always made, but now she's only moving the eyebrow when she did that. She can move other stuff, by the way, but she's... At that, you know, she's tired here and there. Uh, so she only moved her eyebrow when she reacted to that. It was so fucking funny. She's done that several times already, but that's the first time I described it on and, air. Uh, and uh, They said the recess ended? Resume relevant to applied oh, okay. physiology. Well, fuck. Correct. And you've been honored um, okay. quite extensively. Well, we'll come back to that then. Where the fuck? Okay. You're right. And with respect to peripheral blood, you indicated that well, that sucks. you chose the samples that would have minimal postmortem redistribution. Is that right? Correct. And why is that in comparison to this case? Uh, because because this, the sample that we had of hospital blood is is probably going to have less issues with postmortem redistribution. So than this is another witness. We'll come back to this then. Postmortem blood. God damn it. And then these cases that are... Um, represented as post-mortem cases are these cases that you would be getting from ME's offices or coroner's offices correct and where the individual would be deceased or dead correct okay so we also looked at the norfentanyl concentration we'll go back and watch and his presentation with um, one as a mean I promise you guys median we'll down at 2.2 and we have to go a little later so just to clarify with respect to these post-mortem cases the average level of fentanyl was 16.8 nanograms per milliliter, and the average level of norfentanyl was 6.01 nanograms per milliliter. Is that right? Correct. Next slide, please. What's shown here? So this this slide uh, shows uh, up, postmortem cases with no norfentanyl uh, again for the year 2020. So out of those 19,185 cases, we had 15,455 that included fentanyl and norfentanyl. But there were 3,724 cases with uh, no norfentanyl. Uh, there were six that were exceptions to that for uh, reasons of testing purposes. But uh, th those were ones that were only fentanyl, but no norfentanyl. So does this slide indicate that there was a significant number, this 3,724 cases, where there was fentanyl found, but no norfentanyl at all? Correct. All right, next slide, please. 
what's shown here? So this is uh, switching gears. This is we're looking at uh, the DUI driving under the influence fentanyl concentrations uh, that we found in 2020. So these are blood samples that are sent to NMS labs uh, for for people that were suspected of driving uh, under the influence of uh, drugs uh, or potential other reasons of the way they were driving. And uh, in this case, we um, tested, uh, we had 2,345 cases uh, that were individuals that were alive that had fentanyl on board. Of course, other drugs may also be present, but this was specifically looking at fentanyl. And we had a mean concentration Merciful of Max, thank you, brother. Per milliliter, Killstream.live slash tip. And then for people were using the uh, cash tag earlier. That's uh, Sunset Squad, Dollar Sign Sunset Squad on Cash App if you want to use that. It's 2,345 cases. Those individuals were alive. Is that right? Correct. And you indicated the average fentanyl level, I believe, is 9.59 nanograms per milliliter. Is that right? Yes. And the average norfentanyl level for those cases was 5.42 nanograms per milliliter. Is that yes. right? Next slide, please. And what's shown here? So this is just a breakdown of the fentanyl concentrations we found in, in drivers that were alive. So the, almost the majority of them were under 5 nanograms per milliliter of fentanyl. Um, and then we had another 26.3% that were between 5.1 and 10 nanograms per milliliter. And then the next set of data was uh, we had 216 cases which were uh, between 11 and 15 nanograms per mil. So that would be in the same area of Mr. Floyd's level of 11 nanograms per milliliter. And then we had several, uh, quite a few David cases. Swan says live boats. Uh, we had boats? Uh, 109 that were. Live boats? 81 -E between 21 and 26. 133 between 26 and 50. And then we actually had 53 cases uh, in living. Just get the big size, Max. Um, that's almost everybody. The small size are really small. Matter of fact, on the second batch of hats, I'm just going to order all the big ones. Not Almost nobody ordered the small. Um, Small's like for really tiny-headed women and shit. a quarter Kids, of the pie uh, of the DUI cases that, that NMS Labs has received. Is that right? Right. He would, he would be right in there with about the uh, 80th percentile. And you indicated that those levels... Um, for drivers were found in 53 cases higher than 50 nanograms per milliliter, is that right? Correct. So those individuals were alive and essentially driving at that time. Yes, pretty amazing. All right, next slide please. And what's shown here? So this uh, is uh, uh, basically the post-mortem concentrations uh, or samples that were hospital blood samples that were submitted by Mr. Floyd for Mr. Floyd and we found fentanyl at 11 nanograms per milliliter and norfentanyl at 5.6 nanograms per milliliter. Next slide, please. So this slide shows uh, what the ratio of the parent drug to the metabolite is. So 11 nanograms per mil divided by 5.6, the norfentanyl gave Mr. Floyd a ratio of norfentanyl of 1.96. And essentially, does this slide show just the way in which you would calculate the fentanyl to norfentanyl ratio? Yes. Next slide, please. What's shown on this slide? So this uh, slide shows uh, the ratios of fentanyl levels between 9 and 13 nanograms per milliliter. 
Uh, so that range was chosen because uh, Mr. Floyd's fentanyl concentration was 11 nanograms per milliliter. And when we do uh, driving under the influence work, we actually assign an uncertainty of measurement to that result. So if you, a driver had an 11 nanogram per mil fentanyl uh, present, we would report that as 11 nanograms per mil plus or minus two nanograms per milliliter. So I did this to, to see, well, what kind of ratios do we see also, between postmortem and DUI cases? Can I say the fuck the United States Postal Service because the hats are supposed to be here on the 6th? Kind of and literally all it says now is and, uh, your package will arrive later than expected, but it's still on its way. Currently in transit, and that's what they put yesterday. With a median of five point eight. Fucking losers at the post office. I versus the hate DUI them. population, where the mean was three point two, median two point two four. And then just to clarify, in the bar that shows the postmortem cases, where there are three thousand eighty-eight cases that you looked at between the range of nine to thirteen nanograms per milliliter. Yes, between nine and thirteen nanograms per milliliter. And the ratio in the postmortem cases was 9.05 on average, is that right? Correct. And then with respect to the DUI cases, you were looking at 275 cases between the range of 9 and 13 nanograms per milliliter, is that right? That's correct. And so the average ratio within that group was 3.20, is that correct? Yes. How does Mr. Floyd's ratio compare to that data set? So Mr. Floyd's ratio is, is roughly just a little bit below the median ratio in DUI. So in postmortem cases, we know uh, fentanyl concentrations can be much higher than norfentanyl concentrations uh, because frequently these are, the, uh, these are deaths due to fentanyl. Other drugs may be present, and there could be other reasons for the death. It doesn't say that these are all fentanyl intoxications. But just looking at it as a whole, with a large amount of data, this is what we observed. And we know with the DUI population, they are alive, but other drugs may be present as well. So it's really just to sort of look at how things look differently in the, in the living and the postmortem population. And does this slide also show that Mr. Floyd's ratio was below the average and even below the median for that found in DUI cases? Yes. Right, next slide, please. So the, this slide is actually just a sort of a summary of the previous slide, uh, but it basically shows um, the relationship between fentanyl and norfentanyl between the postmortem DUI cases and Mr. Floyd's. And again, does it show how norfentanyl levels essentially increase over time in relation to the fentanyl levels? As, as one lives and metabolizes fentanyl, yes. Next slide, please. Now, did you also look at data with respect to methamphetamine for 2020 at NMS Labs? We did. And what's shown on this slide that's up right now? So this slide shows uh, the concentration of the methamphetamine found in uh, Mr. Floyd's hospital sample. Uh, it was 19 nanograms per milliliter. And then, uh, as we talked about earlier, um, amphetamine was below the reporting limit, so it was not reported. Not reported but detected as part of your confirmation process. You can see it, we can see it in the confirmation data, yes. Next slide, please. And what's shown here? So uh, this slide shows DUI on methamphetamine cases uh, with, with, with amphetamine and without amphetamine as a metabolite. So we had 3,271 cases that um, had methamphetamine in our driving under the influence population. 
2,975 of these included amphetamine, and then uh, uh, 296 were just uh, methamphetamine with no amphetamine. And again, when we're talking about the DUI population, these are individuals, this 3,271 uh, number, individuals who are alive, is that right? Correct. Next slide, please. What's shown here? So this, this is a further breakdown of um, what we see in our DUI methamphetamine cases. So the mean methamphetamine concentration in all of our DUI cases was 378 nanograms per milliliter of methamphetamine. Uh, the median was 240 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, and in the 5 to 20 nanogram per milliliter range, with 5 being our lowest limit of quantitation, uh, we had 192 cases between 5 and 20 nanograms per milliliter, which is in that range that Mr. Floyd's methamphetamine was. And does this uh, graphic also show Mr. Floyd's level of 19 nanograms per milliliter? Yes, it does. It it's, uh, shows on the bottom. And again, 94% uh, of the DUI cases that we tested had methamphetamine concentrations in excess of 20 nanograms per milliliter. So in essence, Mr. Floyd's level was within the bottom, 5.9 percent, is that right? Correct. Next slide, please. What's shown here? So this is just a further breakdown of what kind of methamphetamine concentrations we have observed in drivers uh, in the last, uh, in 2020. And again, other drugs may be present. Um, but uh, in this case, we had 196 cases between 5 and 20. 306 between 21 and 50, 399 between 50 and 100, 571 between 101 and 200, 1,010 between 201 and 500, 578 between 501 and 1,000, and then an additional 215 cases that methamphetamine was greater than 1,000 nanograms per milliliter. So again, you had 215 cases where the number was greater than 1,000 nanograms per milliliter, is that right? Correct. And the biggest piece of the pie, the 30.9% of the cases were between 201 and 500 nanograms per milliliter. Is that right? Yes. So Mr. Floyd's level of 19 nanograms per milliliter, that was exceptionally low. Is that right? In relationship to the DUI driving population, yes. Nothing further, Your Honor. No. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. All right. Um, it's a little Nelson. unusual for you to be testifying in a death case, is not? Um, not terribly. I mean, I do work with medical examiner and coroners a, a lot, um, but they typically are the ones that testify as to cause a manner of death. Um, Usually, if I'm involved in the death case, it's, it's usually uh, drug delivery resulting in death. Okay. And so in the, you, you work in a laboratory that works with medical examiners from around the country, right? Correct. And you perform these services um, in, a, in a variety of different contexts. Agreed? Yes. So you testify that some are, you know, clinical in nature, some tests are clinical in nature, some are law enforcement in nature and some are death related, right? Correct. All right. 
And um, you, at the time you became involved in this case, you were obviously aware of the significance of this case, right? Yes. And um, your laboratory goes through uh, an accreditation process, correct? We do. And part of the accreditation process is to have to establish standards and reporting thresholds, right? Yes. And so the reason a laboratory will have those thresholds is to be consistent in how toxicology is reported to various individuals, right? Correct. And so um, one of those uh, accreditation standards is actually to have and set this threshold that if a, if a particular chemical component is below that threshold, you would suggest not report it, right? Or you would say it's not reported. So there are instances where our, a medical examiner might ask us if something was present below a threshold, um, and depending on what the situation is, it could be potentially reported as such. It's not common practice. Uh, in this case, we didn't do that. It's not common practice to, to report uh, things that are below or chemical components below the threshold because it's contrary to the accreditation standards, agreed? So it, it does depend on the situation, but by and large, if you, if it's, when you, there's a reason we have cutoffs, and if we go below those, um, it, 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 it basically is not something we typically would do. Um, and um, so uh, uh, an analyst who comes in hypothetically and may see certain markers that have an indication that something is present but refuses to acknowledge its presence, that would be because of those accreditation and accreditation standards, right? I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Hypothet hypothetically speaking, if an analyst from, say, the state crime lab comes in and a question is presented to her about the presence of a particular substance, but that substance was below the reporting thresholds. I'm going to object, Your Honor. Okay. It's, still it's a hypothetical. Overall. And that analyst refuses to acknowledge uh, refuses to acknowledge the possibility of the presence, right? That would theoretically or hypothetically be because of those uh, threshold rules. So I, I, I really can't speak to what is done in a crime lab because I don't work in that area. So for me, it's, it's really limited to um, toxicology and, and the anal an analysis of biological samples like blood or urine. So, in other words, the, the reason we have these thresholds is so that we set the rules, right? So, uh, the, the reasons these thresholds were actually established, it has to do with, with the original validation of the method. Uh, we, uh, the, the thresholds are not set because of any standard that says this is what you have to use as a threshold. The laboratory establishes those and then writes SOPs in, in accordance with their validation for the procedure. SOPs being standard operating procedures. Yes. And so um, if the laboratory sets this standard and says here's the standard and then does something in contravention or reports something that is 
against that standard, that would be a violation of the standard operating practice, right? If it, if it were reported without any explanation, yes. Um, so just a few kind of follow-up questions to your, your testimony. Uh, you've met with uh, or spoken with members of the prosecution team several times, right? Yes. Uh, including February 26th, March 5th, March 12th, April 5th, and April 6th? That sounds right. I don't know the exact dates. Understood. Uh, you wouldn't disagree with me if I told you those were the dates? I wouldn't. And uh, I was provided with meeting notes and summaries of your conversations, right? Yes. All right. So I just want to make sure that I understand and the jury understands the difference between fentanyl and norfentanyl, okay? Okay. You would agree that fentanyl is <clears throat> the active ingredient, or when you, when you report the fentanyl concentration, it's the active ingredient, right? Yes. Now, when a person ingests any, essentially any substance, controlled substance, doesn't have to be an illegal drug, the body metabolizes that, correct? Yes. And then the body eliminates that, right? Yes. Through the natural processes of the body. Yes. Right? And the elimination of the substance results in what's called a metabolite, agreed? Yes. And so fentanyl being the active ingredient, norfentanyl is the metabolite or the breakdown, correct? Yes. And included in this particular case, you uh, discovered a fentanyl concentration of 11 nanograms per milliliter, right? Yes. And a norfentanyl uh, level of 5.6? Yes. Um, <clears throat> now, you testified on direct examination that that could be one of two scenarios occurring there, right? Yes. One scenario is that a person took a certain amount of a controlled sub of fentanyl and enough time had passed to eliminate that, correct? Correct. Or to break it down and have that metabolite correct. being present. That's one scenario, right? The other scenario, as I understand it, is someone took some, that initial dose began to break down, and then the person took more, That and so the active ingredient is there, but it had not yet broken down, right? Correct. So it's sort of either, and you describe it, I think, as an acute uh, ingestion or a non-acute ingestion. So, uh, I, you know, a person, when you have fentanyl, fentanyl will break down to norfentanyl, and, but you could still take more fentanyl, so you could still take fentanyl while the first fentanyl was breaking down. Right. Um, so uh, put it into context of people who may consume alcohol. Right, I have a beer. Uh, my alcohol concentration is going to rise to a certain level. Right, I have a beer. I'm having coffee. Today Whatever, now. based on the alcohol concentration. Agreed. Yes. And my body will essentially immediately begin to decrease and eliminate the alcohol. Right. Correct. But if I have a second beer, I'm adding more alcohol, causing my blood alcohol concentration to rise. Correct. Yes. And. That's similar with all substances, including fentanyl. In general, yes. I mean, so alcohol is eliminated at a fixed rate over, over time. There's only so much you can eliminate with time. With drugs, some drugs, it's a little different. But Some drugs may be faster, some may right. take longer, right? right? And when you describe the results in this particular case, you're talking about... Um, 
Um, I'll strike that, sorry. So there's, from based on a strict interpretation of these test results, there's no way to determine at what point any particular amount of fentanyl was ingested. Agreed? I would agree with that. Now, fentanyl, again, uh, being a toxicologist, is uh, a lawfully manufactured controlled substance in the United States, right? It can be prescribed uh, as a fentanyl patch. It can be a lollipop, but it can be used in surgery. So there's different forms right. lawfully prescribed. And the, the fentanyl that is contained in a patch or a lollipop or that an anesthesiologist may administer is in a very controlled and known manner, right? Yes. Now, when we're talking about the illicit uh, street drugs that involve or include fentanyl, you have really no way of knowing what the particular fentanyl concentration is literally from pill to pill, agreed? Correct. And so every single pill you take, it becomes a unique experience for the person, right? That's true. And so regardless of whether you have a tolerance or a non-tolerance, any single incident could cause an adverse reaction. Well, sure. If, if you uh, suddenly had a pill that was 10 times the amount of fentanyl than another one, then yes. And you just you have no idea, right? You don't know from pill to pill. True. Right, because they're not manufactured in a... They don't have standards and practices for the, uh, you know, Maurice Pill Press or whatever the fuck, yeah. Maurice Hall, what's that guy's name? Now, in terms of... Getting close to 500 you again. Smash the that there were some pills found. Sorry, I've been taking care of business on of the squad car. Yeah, so much shit's going on. Yes. And those pills um, were tested and contained the DNA of George Floyd, right? I heard that, yes. Heard that. What do you mean, and, heard, what uh, mean you heard uh, that? Presumably, those pills were not in there prior to Mr. Floyd being in the squad car, right? I assume not, yes. And so, well, how would they have you gotten understand that as those pills were tested, those pills were at least appeared to be partially ingested or partially dissolved. Okay. And so there would be evidence of an acute ingestion of fentanyl and or methamphetamine at the time Mr. Floyd was in the backseat of the squat car. Let's do one objection. Which one would you like? Hey, Sherry, thank you. Sustained. <clears throat> are, are you familiar with the uh, term hooping? Hoop. What? You can answer it if you know. I don't. Now, in terms of your slideshow, and I don't have an electronic copy of it. Do you know what hooping is, chat, by the way? It's when you plant something in your ass. Your slides. You reviewed in uh, 2020 to sneak a total it into jail or 19,185 fatal You notice how quick the, the prosecution right? objected no, no, to that? They were not necessarily fatal overdoses. They, they were cases that were from medical examiners um, and where we found fentanyl in a peripheral blood sample. But they could have been homicides, they could have been other drugs involved, so they, they were just basically random fentanyl concentration. Gotcha. 
So <clears throat> someone may have been shot as a part of the, and, and killed as a result of a gunshot, but as a result of the autopsy process, they collected the blood and analyzed the blood as a part of the normal autopsy process, right? Correct. So the cause or manner of death being you know, gunshot wound, homicide, but we still look at <clears throat> the um, blood, yes. right? Okay. And it was a total of 19,185, right? Correct, peripheral blood samples. So when the slide says 19,185 fatal overdose cases, you're not suggesting, it's somewhat misleading, I think, to me, because you're suggesting it's a fatal overdose case. I didn't think it said that. Well, we can, we can. If it did, I mean, that was something. Oh, you're I a little misleading, huh? On the other, the other day, and I said, that's not correct. Okay. <laughs> so just, this is, where, and I apologize for the writing, where it says fatal overdose cases, that's not correct. Oh, now they want a sidebar, man, he's raking them again, dude. God, they want a timeout so badly. All right. Okay. Also, man, I'm dealing with some sh can't even talk about less. Oh, okay. That's the fun stuff. Also, we're up on killstream.live slash tip, killstream.live slash entropy. I'll put those links or get them put in the YouTube chat here pretty soon. Uh, you guys on Trovo should already know that. Got a little bit of support already. Big support this morning as well. Uh, we'll be here until probably about 6 p.m. Eastern maybe. Then we'll clean up some testimony uh, when we get a break. So we might we won't go any later than 6.30, but we'll we'll definitely play that segment from earlier that we missed. There's a jury. We're going to take our 20-minute oh. uh, recess. We're going to do a little work in the break, but uh, we'll give you 20 minutes. Thanks. Let's see. They're going to do a little work. Um, now, I wonder if they're going to do this in front of the the cameras, or are they going to take it to judges' chambers? It looks like he's staying in his seat. Okay, so it sounds like they're taking the break. However, you heard the judge just say that they may be doing work during their break, and what that has meant in the past sometimes is that there are arguments yeah. that we can listen to. Right. So if the sound comes back up, we're going to send it right back to the court here, Rena. Right, so this is just one of the sidebars that we're used to, and is it because maybe the jury hasn't left the room yet? That the sound is down? That's, yeah. Yeah, that's not clear. They, they, could, they could be just out of the, making their way out of the room right now. I think so, yeah. Yep, it looks like he's looking. That's the door. When he looks that way, he's looking toward the jury or toward the door that they exit. And there's usually a deputy over there. All right, let's go. Fire back up. He doesn't have his little headphones on anymore. <laughs> True, yeah. So. All right, fire it, it up, It's judge. unclear exactly what they are going to argue about during the break here. Sure they'll well, there was obviously the, oh, here we go. Any light to shed on this? What's going on? Yes, sir. Uh, I received a bait stamp 49606, and apparently, I mean, and I printed it, and I started working on my preparation. Apparently, at some point, I received an updated copy of this same presentation, mm. and uh, it's 49. 
623. So it's like 17 pages later, and I'm just trying to verify when I received that because I was using this as preparation. This was all last night. They dropped all of this last night. So I understand what Mr. Nelson has was an earlier version. Witnesses and updated them. You showed the jury during direct the updated version. Who has both? Who has both? Mr. Nelson. No, I'm asking you. You showed the updated version to the jury. That's correct. All right. When was the updated version sent to Mr. Nelson? I would expect the same day that the original version was, which was, my best guess, was two, April 6th, but I, I would have to confirm. April 6th? So is this Tuesday? Correct, Your Honor. I wish within the same day that the other slides were sent. They just needed updates. Well, I'll tell you what, let's uh, take our break and uh, let's nail it down specifically, but I think we can hardly, there's a lot of moving parts. I don't think anybody's at, I think you can just acknowledge that this without showing it again, that you received an earlier version that's been updated. And, and, and that's fine, Your Honor. I mean, part of the problem that we're experiencing here is I'm getting these things in PD, many of these items in PDF format, right? I, you know, some of them I'm getting electronically from, there's so many moving, there's so many people involved here uh, that I'm getting things in different formats. So if I can have a second to speak with Ms. Voss. Yeah, I guess. It just seems like there's a good faith passing in the night of different versions, and nobody should be criticized. So. I don't think so, Judge. Again, let's I don't just think so, Judge. tell the jury this is the latest one, and this is what it is. And that's perfectly fine, Your Honor, and I am happy to provide an extra copy. We are happy to provide and republish the slides that were presented to the jury, but I do want to make sure that we're not showing the jury inaccurate information. That's April 6th, and I must have looked and just assumed it was the second copy of the same thing. Let's just clean it up when the jury comes back. Tell them that uh, you were relying on an earlier version. The, the uh, amended version is the one that the witness uh, showed during direct examination, and leave it at that. And perhaps it would help if I could get a copy of that. <laughs> okay, we're done until we're done with the break. Let's uh, reconvene at the uh, where are we at now? About 2.40 or 3.40? 3.40. Thank you. All right, 3.40, they're going to come back. That's like All right, Lou, uh, 15 minutes. Why don't we jump into what we missed earlier? Extensively for your work in that regard, right? Correct. Um, you're not a Minneapolis police officer. Correct. It's fair to say that the training that is provided by the Minneapolis Police Department in terms of medical care comes nowhere close what we to the level of expertise. Correct. You understand that Minneapolis police officers are not even EMTs. Correct. They have a basic life-saving certificate dealing with gunshots, chest seals, tourniquets, and CPR, right? My, yes. Right. So you're, uh, you've also had the opportunity uh, to review a lot of the body camera footage, correct? 
Yes. You've done, um, I think you testified that you've watched these videos hundreds of times. Correct. And you've watched them all from all different angles, correct? Correct. And you've had the luxury of slowing things down, moving it into slow motion, still framing various times, right? Correct. And <clears throat> so your analysis of this case comes after hundreds, if not thousands of hours of time spent looking at this information. I don't know the total amount of time that I've spent, but it's substantial. Right. So then you uh, ultimately, based on the review of all of that, you prepared a report, correct? Correct. And you provided that to the state of Minnesota in late January of this year, right? January 27th, yeah. Right. And after that, you've had numerous meetings with uh, the prosecution team in this case? And, and by phone or by Zoom, yeah. Right. Um, including January 30th of this year? I, I don't know the dates, but I mean, that sounds correct. Right. So if I were to tell you the dates were January 30th, March 3rd, March 9th, March 17th, March 21st, April 6th, and April 7th, you would not have uh, any reason to dispute me. I'd have no reason to dispute. And you understand that notes are made of those meetings and provided to the defense in this case, correct? I understood that. And then you've also been able to spend a substantial period of time preparing the, the exhibits that the jury was able to see earlier today, right? Correct. And uh, those were all prepared by you or someone within your team, right? They're prepared by me, yeah. And uh, you provided those to the prosecution in advance of today's testimony? Correct. And you understand those were provided to me last night? I, I have no idea when. Okay. Yep. All right. So you've, you've had a lot of time to prepare uh, both yourself as well as the prosecution team in connection with this case. Fair to say? Correct. Now, you talked quite a bit about physics in uh, your direct testimony. Agreed? Yes. And you would agree that <clears throat> physics or the application of physical forces is a constantly changing uh, set of circumstances. I, I didn't catch what you said. Sure. You would agree with me, would you not, that when you look at the By the way, for those just joining us this afternoon, we had to sit through this guy's extremely boring testimony for three hours straight. Physics. And we missed this. These things are constantly changing, right? Yeah, all signs. They're on break. They'll be back in a minute, by the way. This is the part we missed in the afternoon. Constant. I mean, yes. in milliseconds and nanoseconds, right? Yes. And so if I put this much weight or this much weight, all of the, the formulas and variations will, will change from second to second, millisecond to millisecond, nanosecond to nanosecond. Agreed? I agree. Similarly, biology sort of works the same way, right? Yes. My heart beats, my lungs breathe, my brain is sending millions of signals to my body at all times. Correct. Again, even, I mean, faster than the speed of light, right? Correct. Millions of signals every nanosecond, right? Yes. And I think in your report, you even kind of discuss that when you're talking about these instances, when you're talking about the physics or the biology, what you're really talking about is a single kind of nanosecond. But all of these processes are working in concert at all times, right? Right. I mean, the way we calculate it is the mean value. But, I mean, it, it's then into one instant. <laughs> right. Tactics, you've, thank you, sir. You've taken this case and you've literally boiled it down into a nanosecond. 
Oh, I wouldn't say that, no, because it's obviously in my report, as you see, it's sequentially, there's a whole chronology. I begin from the time the knee is placed on the neck and then all the time until uh, what's happening in Hennepin County ER. And so you, you talk, your report talks about the sequential nature of things, but when we talk about the biology and the physics of this case, these things are working simultaneously, contemporaneously, all together, right? That's correct. In an incredibly rapid fashion. Yes. And you would agree with me that, that as this incident was occurring, there was nobody measuring the units of force that were placed on any particular position of any particular person at any particular moment, right? There was nobody there measuring them at the time. I agree that, but, but they're all calculable. Understood. And that's when you calculate them, what you have to do is you have to boil it down into what you would call the mean or the average, right? Correct. And so in whenever we look at the concept of an average, there are things that are happening moments before, moments after, right? Yes. And forces will increase or decrease relative to the nanosecond of time. Agreed? Correct, yeah. And ultimately, when we talk about kind of the biology of things, a pathologist tries to look at all the intersection of all of the things that occur to a particular, in a particular death investigation, correct? But, I mean, they're not looking at anything to do physiology. Understood. But they're also looking at how other uh, factors may contribute to the death of an individual, right? I mean, they're basically yes looking... No, sir. Sorry? It's a yes or no, sir, so I'm objecting. Well, uh, uh, yes, partly. Okay. They're looking at yeah. things beyond a nanosecond. Agreed? No, no I, I mean, I think in terms of a pathologist, they're looking at, at a nanosecond. They're looking at the nanosecond of death. Right. But they're taking into consideration things simply that, that extend beyond physiology, right? I mean, they're lo looking primarily at pathology. Right. So what causes the heart to stop? What causes <clears throat> the lungs to cease to function, etc. right? They're making an, an inference based on a pathological time point. Right. Considering a multitude of biological factors that are involved in the death of a person, right? I mean, it's the same as any, any physician is looking at a multitude of factors. Right, and that's a you said a very very hard surface, right? Yeah. Can withstand yeah. a great amount of pressure, right? Correct. And <clears throat> and so when we talk about the placement of the knee, there would be periods of time where Mr. Chauvin's knee was placed at that nuchal ligament, based on your observation of the yes. videos. I'm sorry. goes both ways. And you've had an opportunity to review the autopsy, correct? I did, yeah. Right. You understand um, that there was no bruising either atop the skin or under the, the skin surfaces that were noted by Dr. Baker? Yes, I'm aware. 
And you also are aware, uh, you talked quite a bit about the hypopharynx, right? Yes. And you're aware that the hypopharynx was photographed at autopsy and no injury was noted. I'm aware. Now, <clears throat> I, found, I found it very interesting uh, in your testimony and your report when you're kind of talking about this notion of if you can't speak or if you can speak, it doesn't mean you can, or, sorry, I have to say, if you can speak, you can breathe, yeah. right? Um, and you describe this as a very dangerous proposition, right? Yes. yes. You describe this as causing a false sense of security to people, right? That's how Correct. you do it. Yeah. And in fact, in your report, you actually uh, write a paragraph about how physicians oftentimes uh, have trouble with this, right? Yes. And so people who've, similar to yourself, attended medical school, mm -hmm. right? You, sorry, you have to say yes. I'm sorry, terribly sorry. No yeah. problem. Yes. Um, so, in, you know, intelligent men and women who've graduated from college, gone on to medical school, and uh, are engaged in the practice of medicine, sometimes uh, have problems with this notion, right? Yes. They, a patient comes in and says that they're having trouble breathing, and oftentimes a physician will uh, not believe them, essentially. It's, it's important, Mr. Nelson, I, to make sure we're, we're talking about speech or difficulty in breathing, because they're different. Right. Well, you, you, you write in your report that some doctors incorrectly consider patients to be hysterical. Your Honor, may we approach? Uh, let's do this, Charles. Uh, Your Honor, the uh, reference to the report is hearsay. It's not an evidence. It's not property. Overruling from it. Overruled. You wrote in your report that some doctors incorrectly consider patients hysterical and the symptoms imaginary in nature, which further aggregates patient distress, right? Yes, yes, I recall. And you wrote that this view represents a physician's failure to understand the fundamental cause of a clinical disorder. Right, but I'm talking about a different thing there. That's hyperventilation syndrome. So, somebody Damn. comes in, yeah, it's well, very different fun, than the it? difficulty with speech. They're, they're really Jerry, thank and you. oranges. Okay. But if physicians, right, someone comes in and they're yeah. hyperventilating and they articulate to their physician, yes. I can't breathe, yes. right? And it's hyperventilation syndrome, right? Yes. And physicians oftentimes, as you indicate, yes. confuse this issue. Correct. They blame the patient, right? Or I don't have to blame the patient, but I mean, they, they certainly miss the diagnosis. And it's a kind of a, when we're talking about speaking and breathing simultaneously, yes. which is a different consideration. Um, if uh, a Minneapolis police lieutenant who trains police officers happened to have testified that that's a common statement in the course of treatment or in the course of training of Minneapolis police officers, you might take exception with that statement. I, I didn't follow your question. Uh, it's very hard to hear through that plexiglass. And, uh, and I'm losing my voice, I think. Excuse me. If a Minneapolis police officer, yeah. I'll try to talk closer to the mic. Mm -hmm. If a Minneapolis police lieutenant who trains Minneapolis police officers testified that it is frequently said and trained to police officers that a person can talk, it means they can breathe. You would have a problem with that. 
Yes, I mean, they're able to breathe at that moment in time, but 10 seconds later, they may be dead. Right. And because <clears throat> dealing with any person is a rapidly evolving situation that can change from second to second. Yes. Now, in terms of the calculations that you've made, um, you would agree that your calculations are generally theoretical, correct? 640 watching no, they're not live. I mean, they're based on Waiting direct measurements. They're based on extensive uh -oh, research. But you're making certain assumptions well, in the application. Um, the question is, is uh, they may have uh, no, they're touched not on yet. They're, they're, they're breaking shit down. Okay. Application of that science, are you not? Very few assumptions. You're assuming the weight of Mr. Chauvin. Right, I'm aware. So, I mean, obviously, I'm aware that there's two different weights that are given. And you're assuming the weight of the uh, equipment that the officer wears. Yes. And you've not actually ever physically measured the weight of the equipment a police officer carries, correct? No. I mean, I, I took the, the measurements that are reported. And you're not actually weighing what Mr. Chauvin weighed on May 25th of 2020. No. And in your measurements, you're all, you are you appear to be at least from. I bet you don't even live, bro. Going to be limited. But from my understanding, is that your measurements assumed an equal weight distribution between the right and the left legs? It, it, yes, that, that's correct. All right. And so again, as we know, as things change and evolve and flow, that's weight is pretty frequently redistributed, right? That is correct. And again, in terms of the... Uh, By the way, we'll finish this up. They're going to go back live in a minute. At the end of the day's testimony, we'll come back and finish this up. I know we're having to go out of order a little bit, but we're trying to cover as much as possible with the time we have. E E L V. Am I yes. saying that right? The E E L V. That's the. Can you and expiratory lung volume. All right. You're also um, basing that um, those calculations on the presumption that a person is a healthy individual, right? For the E L V, it's not going to change really. But in terms of the normal respiratory rate, excuse me, some of the other. Uh, factors that you put into your analysis, it's all premised upon a healthy individual, right? right. It's based on a 46-year-old person of a particular height and sex, yes. Right. Uh, who's healthy. Correct. Right. Um, and so you would agree if biology can change rapidly, <laughs> uh, that the biological uh, the specific biological conditions of Mr. Chauvin and or Mr. Floyd come into play, right? Correct. And those volumes or those figures that you've assessed in connection with this case, <clears throat> they are um, conditioned upon him being a healthy individual. Right. I mean, it, it varies in terms of the lungs. I mean, say, for example, compliance will vary, but end expiratory lung volume is pretty robust. It okay. just isn't going to vary. Okay, so some, but other factors, like you said, what was the first sentence? Lung compliance will vary from, from one person to the next person, but it varies 
di different segments within the lung. They're not all monolithic. Okay. Now, and you, you talked about one thing in terms of, and this is a little bit of an aside, in terms of your the prone position and yeah. the pushing of the stomach into the lungs, right? Yes. Um, the size of a person's stomach has some bearing on that, right? It does. A person like myself who has a few extra inches, if I'm prone, it's going to perhaps push further or harder up into my lungs, right? Yes. A person who is healthy, physical, uh, muscular, like George Floyd, going to have less of an impact. That is correct. All right. But again, in terms of what we have learned about Mr. Floyd from his autopsy and his medical records, is that we understand that Mr. Floyd had some heart disease, right? That is correct. In fact, I believe uh, that he had uh, in some of his arteries somewhere between a 75 and 90 percent occlusion of his ventricular arteries, right? Correct. And that's going to affect blood flow in a, in a person, right? It's going to make the body work a little harder to get the blood through the body. No, no not really. It's not going to do that. Okay. There's, how does that affect a person's respiratory? The, the coronary artery? Dick Nelson. If the coronary artery is affecting it, and if the coronary artery was contributing to shortness of breath, you would expect that he would be complaining of chest pain, and you would be expect that he would be demonstrating a very rapid respiratory rate. We don't see either. Okay. Um, we'll come back to the res re res respiration. Resp I can't say it. I'm, I'm taken by your accent. Uh, the respi respiratory rate. I can't compensate for it. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, his, I'll say like you, his respiratory rate. Okay. There you go. All right. We also, we also understand that Mr. Floyd, based on his medical records, has a history of hypertension or high blood pressure. Yes, that's correct. Now, in terms of, uh, we also understand that Mr. Floyd had previously been diagnosed with COVID-19, right? Correct. And he may not be symptomatic, have been symptomatic on March 25th, but it's fair to say that um, a lot is unknown about the effects of COVID-19 on a person's lungs, long term. I mean... Not as much as it would appear to be the case. I mean, because obviously it's a fire. Yeah, they're back something a, like a, a huge heart attack or something else. They're back live. We'll go back uh, to that, that later. Cause the death, right? That's correct. These are simply blood samples, right? Correct. And when you look at these blood samples, doctor. you say the mean level of these samples was 16.8 nanograms per milliliter, right? Yes. And when we say the mean level, you're talking the average, yes. right? So if you take up all of the 19,185 cases, add up their uh, levels and divide them by the number of cases, that's the average, right? Correct. And the median being 10 nanograms per milliliter, yes. right? Meaning that's just 50% of the cases have higher fentanyl levels and 50% have lower, right? Yes. And again, we can't differentiate what the actual cause or manner of death was in any one of these cases, right? That's correct. <clears throat> now, in terms of the 
19,185 cases when you're looking at the inclusion of norfentanyl versus the exclusion, uh, the vast majority of those cases included norfentanyl, right? They did. 15,455 of the 19,185 cases. That's correct. By the way, shout out Ali now, when, when sent a super chat earlier. The, the I'll play that video later. Obviously, people are, this is a little bit of a different uh, type of a situation, right? People are alive. Yes. They're driving a motor vehicle, right? Yes. Presumably. Or, or sleeping in one. <laughs> right, I suppose. Uh, <clears throat> and here again, there were 2,345 DUI cases, right? Yes. The average uh, level was 9.59, right? Yes and the median level was 5.3. So 50% above 5.3, 50% below. Correct. Uh, nevertheless, they were all arrested for DUI, right? Well, again, I, as I mentioned, other drugs <laughs> may be present, so we- Right, thank you, brother, on entropy. And so what we're really doing is we're isolate and create some form of a comparison of Mr. Floyd's fentanyl levels and his norfentanyl levels to some sample of population, right? Correct. He said, one love sample the court of population streams. we Thank know you. is alive, right? Because they're driving a car. And the other sample, we have no frame of reference. Did they die from fentanyl overdose or did they die from some other reason? We have no context. That's correct. All we know is they're deceased. <clears throat> In terms of uh, when we look at the ratio of fentanyl levels between 9 and 13 nanograms, right? Of the 19,185 post-mortem cases, 3,088 of those cases had a, again, a uh, similar fentanyl concentration to Mr. Floyd, right? Yes. Again, of the 3,088 cases within that range, we have no frame of reference or no context as to what percentage of those people died from fentanyl overdose versus some other cause or manner of death. That is true. The only thing we have is a similar concentration. All right. And so <clears throat> statistically, kind of speaking, uh, it's fair to say that some of the 3,088 people in that category died of fentanyl. S in the chat for yes. fentanyl, big Floyd. Some percentage died of some other cause. Yes. And again, in terms of the um, amphetamine, amphetamine, the methamphetamine, and the and the amphetamine. Methamphetamine and fentanyl, would you, do you find that to be an unusual mixture of controlled substances? 
So I'm not very familiar with what combinations are being seen with, with street drugs. So we see a variety of controlled substances. We tend to see fentanyl more with cocaine or heroin than with methamphetamine, but that's just what I see. Um, but I can't speak to what is regionally being observed. Have you heard of the phrase goofball or, or speedball? I've heard of speedball, yes. Okay, but not, so speedball usually being in, uh, like a fentanyl and opiate and uh, cocaine, right? Yeah, it used to be heroin and cocaine. Heroin and cocaine, I'm sorry. And, um, but you've never heard the term goofball? No. Okay. Using now, heroin and meth is goofball. Again, this particular case, your lab also tested the pills that were found in the squad car as well as in the Mercedes-Benz, right? Our crime lab did that, yes. And you've reviewed those? I have not. Okay. But <clears throat> similar to fentanyl and norfentanyl, you've got methamphetamines, which is the active ingredient, right? Yes. And amphetamines, which is the metabolite, right? In, 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 a, in a tablet, are you saying? No, in Mr. Floyd's blood sample. Like yes, there was okay. methamphetamine. I'm just, and just generally speaking, methamphetamine is the active drug, and amphetamine is the metabolite of that drug. It's a metabolite, but it's also active. Okay. So, um, meaning it's, what do you mean it's also active? I, I mean, it, it's an active metabolite. It, it, it also... This guy sounds effect. like he's goofballing so right now. A person would have uh, an effect from both of those substances. Correct. Meaning an intoxicating effect. Not necessarily. But some effect. Some effect. Relevant to the DUI population, uh, Mr. Floyd's uh, amphetamine and methamphetamine ratio was on the low side, right? So we didn't look at the ratio of what? methamphetamine to uh, you didn't look at the ratio methamphetamine with Mr. Floyd because what kind of doctor are you? Limit, it, it's not on the report. We didn't report it. Okay. So you can't compare the ratio, but his methamphetamine level was on the low side compared to the DUI population. Yes. And in comparison to the DUI population, as well as the postmortem cases, uh, again there may have been other drugs, as you say, on board. Yes. Right? I have no further questions. Be direct. Get this bum out of here. Dr. Eisenschmidt, you were asked some questions about your lab, NMS, and the testing that was performed in conjunction with accreditation standards. Do you remember those questions? Yes. You were asked by the medical examiner's office to perform the testing. These cocksuckers rap right? early again today. Correct. And NMS performed Swift. the testing that was requested. Is that yes. right? And did NMS follow all the standard operating procedures Schmidt, when yeah. it came to that testing? What is his name? Did. You didn't report Fine. anything in your final report I'll that was below your reporting limit, correct? No. But you maintain that data in connection with your standard procedures. Is that right? Yes. And the, the Daniel Eisenschmidt. Eisenschmidt. And why do you do that? Excuse me? Why do you keep that data? Because we keep that in a normal course of business. 
And is it important to have a record of the testing you did and the things that you went through to achieve your results? Absolutely. You were also asked some questions about the methamphetamine level that Mr. Floyd had in his system. Um, you indicated that it was a low level, that 19 nanograms per milliliter, correct? Yes. And it was so low, in fact, that you wouldn't expect to feel an intoxicating effect from that level, would you? I would not. And in fact, so low that as part of your lab procedures, you'd want to rule out that it's not just a contaminant. That's how low it was, right? I wouldn't say that. I mean, it's, it's real, um, it's there, and it was confirmed. And it was confirmed, part of that confirmation process was that the amphetamine at least supported that it was not just a contaminant, is that right? That's true. Um, but either way, Mr. Floyd's methamphetamine levels were lower than 94% of the driving under the influence population when it comes to methamphetamine. Is that yes. right? You were also asked some questions about the fentanyl levels in this case. Um, obviously, depending, as you described earlier, depending on an individual's tolerance, a level of 11 nanograms per milliliter could have a different effect on a different person, on different people, depending on their level of tolerance. Is that right? Yes. Um, and your, in your experience with respect to, she looks like one of those creatures from Fallout. Oh, sorry, fentanyl use. There are a number what of cases it, where you would expect what are they called? No norfentanil. I forgot to know right? I played Fallout. So yes, we do observe that in in cases where we know something's acute. Let's say with somebody that dies with a syringe in their arm or something like that. And if somebody dies with a syringe yeah, in their arm, yeah, okay. you would expect there to be little to no norfentanil, is that right? Correct. Why is that? Yeah. Uh, because it's a very acute amount. It doesn't mean you could never find it because there could be previous fentanyl use, but that's just not our general observation in that kind of situation. And in that way, the ratio becomes important, is that right? Correct. And why is the ratio important? Because that basically documents how acute the fentanyl was relative to its being broken down to fentanyl. Or fentanyl. And so Mr. Floyd's ratio of 1.96, 11 nanograms per milliliter of fentanyl to 5.6 nanograms per milliliter of norfentanyl, supports that there was survival time after the ingestion of fentanyl. Is that right? What does that ratio show you? It shows two things, that there was survival time from an earlier dose, or there could be an additional dose on top of previous doses. And again, the ratio is consistent and lower than the average ratio that you see for driving under the influence cases with fentanyl on board. Is that right? What does that show you compared to the driving population? It just delineates the difference between a population where, a postmortem population where fentanyl is more likely to be acute than in a driving population where it's more likely to be chronic. And in terms of the ratio, was Mr. Floyd's ratio more similar to the driving population where people were alive or more similar to the postmortem population where people were dead? It was more similar to the DUI population. Nothing further. Anything further. How can you answer that question when we don't know the context of how people actually died? Because we still looked at a large number of data uh, within, within that population. So <clears throat> you have no frame of reference, though, in terms of what, is the, what did the person actually die from? I mean, if, what, if, 
what if of the 19,185 post-mortem cases, 19,184 of them were gunshots? That's not really a possibility, but I have nothing further. All right, thank you. Can you step down? Damn, Nelson. That was Just a great next witness. Uh, we are going to try and fit in. I appreciate your patience and staying until 5.15 if possible because the witness has a flight out tonight, and so we're trying to finish it tonight. You fucking owned him. That dude looked like a joke. Thank you, Your Honor. The state will call Dr. William Schmuck. Schmuck. By the way, the guy before him seemingly did okay. We're going to watch the rest of his testimony later. But this, the, the last dude looked like an idiot. I mean, he did okay, comparatively and speaking, to some of the firm. other prosecution the witnesses. It will be the truth and nothing but the truth. I do, sir. Yeah, he knew he got wrecked. He's got out. He got out of there quick. And if you could remove your mask, Doctor Schmuck. I'm glad we got him in. Thank you. And let's oh start off God. with having you look at this comment. What a uh, state and spell Why would you do your hair like that, Doctor Bill Schmuck? B i l l s m o c k. Doctor Schmuck. Oh my God. This is not. Nice. Come in. Good afternoon, Doctor Schmuck. Good afternoon, sir. Can we start with your telling us what is your area of specialization? I'm an emergency medicine physician with specialized training in forensic medicine. And would you please tell us what is forensic medicine? Yes, forensic medicine is Dude, that's the worst angle. Did he not know where the camera was going to be? Taking medicine usually practiced by the forensic pathologist, but in my case practiced on living patients and applying that to legal situations. Could you give us a brief overview of your um, educational background in medicine? Yes, sir. Um, I obtained a master's degree in anatomy from the University of Louisville School of Medicine. Entered medical school, graduated in 1990 from the University of Louisville. Then completed a three-year residency in emergency medicine at the University of Louisville. Then completed a one-year fellowship in clinical forensic medicine with the Kentucky Medical Examiner's Office. Have you ever worked in an emergency uh, room in emergency medicine? Uh, yes, many times, many years. Uh, how many years, doctor? Uh, 21 years at the level one trauma center at the University of Louisville and then moonlighting in smaller ERs. And what is a level one trauma center? A level one trauma center is Why would the you American even bother College with the of Surgeons criteria saying that this is the place you want to go when you have major trauma gunshot wounds, car wreck, stab wounds, strokes, heart attacks. This is where we have physicians on duty in the ER 24-7 ready to take care of you. Um, are there any level one trauma centers in Minnesota that you're aware of? Uh, there is one right here, sir, in Minneapolis. The Hennepin County Medical Center? It is, sir. Uh, do you also teach in the area of emergency medicine? Yes, sir, I do. Uh, what do you teach and where? I teach emergency medicine residents, medical students, paramedics, police officers, um, not only at the University of Louisville, at the Louisville Metro uh, Police Department Police Academy. I train the paramedics for the uh, Jefferson Town Emergency Medical Service. I also train uh, and teach all over the country in areas relating to strangulation, gunshot wounds, emergency medicine, forensic medicine. I was going to ask whether you had any special background or expertise in either asphyxial deaths or strangulation. 
in, in both sir, asphyxial death and um, so looking at asphyxia, meaning low levels of oxygen in the blood in people that have died as well as people that did not die. So you've, uh, you've published or edited several different books. I've edited uh, four textbooks. We won't read them, but I will show them and call them out. Um, one, domestic violence and non-fatal strangulation assessment. That is one, sir. And is this a teaching uh, book? It is. It's designed to, it's a workbook where you work through case studies looking at the injuries, understanding the injuries, how the injuries occur or don't occur in non-fatal strangulation. Another one called Forensic Emergency Medicine? Uh, that is correct, sir. That is the uh, second edition of that book. And the third larger one, Forensic Medicine, Clinical and Pathological Aspects. That is correct, sir. And what is this text for? Uh, that is a text, again, looking at clinical forensic medicine, which is forensic medicine but applied to the patient that is still alive in most cases. Dr. Smock, have you also, um, do you also have in your background any work as, uh, as, as an assistant medical examiner? Yes, I do. What is that, sir? Um, in Louisville, Kentucky, we started the program through the Kentucky Medical Examiner's Office of providing living forensic medicine consultations. That is providing the same level of evaluation on someone who may have been shot, stabbed, but didn't die in the emergency department in the ICU uh, compared to someone that uh, may have died, given that same level of care. And so that program was started at the Kentucky Medical Examiner's Office uh, back in 1990. And from 1991 through 1997, I was an assistant medical examiner at the Kentucky Medical Examiner's Office providing those sorts of evaluations and consultations. So you have a background also then in clinical- 7.30, watching live. Let's go. Jury, what that is? Yes, clinical forensics is, again, applying the same training that the forensic pathologist gets you know, from autopsies, the science, the medicine, but applying it to the patient that is in front of you that is still alive. And so what is the difference between someone who has sustained a gunshot wound that's dead versus someone who's sustained a gunshot wound that's alive? You know, what did that bullet hit? Did they survive? Did they get to the operating room in time? And, but the forensics is the same. How do you determine entrance from exit? How far was the gun away from the body when the person was shot? It's that same science, but applied to the living patient. Dr. Smock, how are you currently employed? I am the police surgeon Harvard. for the Louisville Metro Police Department, as well as the medical director for the Training Institute for Strangulation Prevention. Wait, what? I'm also the medical director for the, the Jefferson Town Emergency Medical Service and a clinical professor of emergency medicine at the University of Louisville. Could you give the jury some sense of how large the Louisville Police Department is, maybe in comparison to the Minneapolis Police Department? The Louisville Metro Police Department, we have space for 1,200 sworn officers. We're down to probably a little less than 1,100 officers right now. Um, I think Minneapolis may have seven to 800. I'm not sure. I think we have a little larger department uh, than Minneapolis. So would it be fair to describe you as a police surgeon? Uh, that is my title, sir. That is my role. That's my job. 
And so what are your duties as a police surgeon? It varies from day to day. There, there are multiple. It's the doctor that goes with the SWAT team when the team deploys to make sure that somebody gets hurt, suspect, hostage, officer, that there is a doctor there to take care of them. I advise the police chief on health care policy. I do occupational medicine, looking at the officers. He looks like hurt. he was cast from a TNT uh, fitness for duty. drama when, can, about can they go back to work, or some shit. Uh, write some prescriptions, antibiotics, Viagra. Um, and most of the time is spent doing living forensic consultations, which means when a detective calls and says, Doc, we've had a shooting, or internal affairs calls and says we've had an officer-involved shooting, I would then go to the scene, to the hospital, wherever that examination is, needs to be done, and do the assessment head to toe, just like a pathologist would do on someone that is deceased, but doing it on someone that is still alive. Do you actually do police trainings? I do, sir. What, uh, what kind of trainings? I get uh, each recruit class, I get four hours of training uh, with each recruit that come, class that comes through. Two hours is spent on the forensic evaluation of gunshot wounds. Two hours is spent on strangulation, asphyxia, uh, elder abuse, and child abuse. Uh, have you treated persons with, uh, with cardiac emergencies? Cardiac, oh yes, uh, pre-hospital and in the emergency department. What about dealing with patients who uh, struggle with either uh, methamphetamine or fentanyl addiction? I thought uh, Dabney Coleman was dead. Uh, either in the <laughs> scene thank you. or in the emergency department. Sticker, are, are you I don't know familiar if I with the symptoms not. of um, overdose for either fentanyl or methamphetamine? Uh, very familiar, sir. Can you tell us what uh, Narcan is? Narcan is an, an agonist that will block the effects of an opioid on the receptors in the brain. Um, so if you overdose and you've taken too much narcotic and you are not breathing or you're close to going unconscious, if you give this Narcan, we give it intranasally, uh, then that reverses it, displaces the uh, We're going to stream till the, the end of the day. You wake up. The courtroom day. Have then you we're going to finish the testimony from earlier. About so about Narcan for either methamphetamine or fentanyl. Uh, you administer uh, Narcan for uh, fentanyl because it's uh, an opiate, and that's what it reverses. And yes, I've administered Narcan hundreds of times. So one of the things I'd like to talk with you uh, about with respect to Mr. Floyd is drug tolerance. Uh, is the subject of opioid tolerance something you're familiar with? Uh, very familiar with, sir. Can, can you help us to understand the concept of drug tolerance? Tolerance is um, what does the body, the body repeatedly sees a certain drug. Uh, the most common we think about is, is alcohol. That does somebody build up a tolerance, meaning at one time you're a naive drinker, you take one sip, one bottle, whatever, you feel it. But if you are an alcoholic, you feel nothing because that is tolerance. And the same is true for amphetamines and as well as for opiates, uh, for fentanyl. And whether you're, you're talking about Percocet or other opiates, you build up a tolerance, which means it takes more of that drug for your brain to perceive Molly, the feeling, Percocet. the high, whatever it is uh, that you get when you take that medication or drug.
So somebody who doesn't drink might feel the effects of one beer. Absolutely. Whereas an alcoholic, it may take, who knows? Uh, it may take multiple beers. Right. So, uh, doctor, just for the jury, when you talked, uh, when you made reference to a naive drinker, um, would you explain what you mean by that? Because yes. Naive means somebody that, that doesn't drink or doesn't do any sort of, of drug. Naive means you're totally new. So, doctor, you've been retained by uh, the state of Minnesota as an expert in this case. Yes, sir, I am. Are you being compensated for your time? Um, yes, sir, I am, and uh, I hope so. Otherwise, my wife will uh, <laughs> be very unhappy with me. Could you uh, tell us then what your hourly rate is? Yes, the government rate is $300 per hour. And so the, uh, the charge for your time is the government rate? That is correct, sir. So as part of your uh, work in the case, were you asked to render an opinion regarding the cause of Mr. Floyd's death? Yes, sir, I was. Uh, before we uh, get into your opinions, would you tell us uh, what, what it is you reviewed uh, to give you a foundation for forming opinions? Oh, I reviewed videotapes, um, body camera videos, bystander videos, uh, police videos, Reviewed medical records. Just getting paid like a motherfucker. Uh, Pre-hospital records. Plus, he got paid for all the shitty works uh, on statements per hour, right? From, like uh, witnesses, the, the autopsy report, autopsy photographs, um, thousands of pages of, of documents, sir. Doctor, before we get to the opinion, there was one thing I meant to ask you and, and overlooked. Uh, as a police surgeon, are you required to maintain board certification in emergency medicine? Uh, no, sir, I am not. Then are you currently board certified? No, I'm currently board eligible. I've taken boards on two occasions, uh, but since I'm not in the emergency department anymore and it's not required for the police surgeon, I'm no longer board certified. But you have been in the past. Oh, yes, sir, on two occasions. So, doctor, let's talk about uh, your opinions regarding the cause of Mr. Foy's death. Yes, sir. You, you formulated uh, opinions. Yes, sir, I did. Would you tell us what your opinion or opinions are? Mr. Floyd died from positional asphyxia, which is a fancy way of saying he died because he had no oxygen left in his body. So what we've been referring to is low oxygen. Low oxygen uh, is one way, no oxygen. Uh, when the body is deprived of oxygen, and in this case, from his chest, pressure on his chest and back, he gradually succumbed to lower and lower levels of oxygen until it was gone and he died. Did you uh, consider other possibilities as causes that you evaluated and dismissed as unlikely? Absolutely. Sherry D, was thank you one so of those much. Excited delirium. With the big, yes, sir, was big contribution there, Leon's prank. Thank you. Would you first tell the Very ladies and gentlemen of the jury what excited delirium is? Got some court retort. Excited delirium is a physical and psychiatric state where, because of an imbalance in the brain, a patient will exhibit multiple symptoms. Um, basically, they are hot. Their body is Lord Aragon up. said, what did I miss? Heart rate is up. Respiration well, is up. Superhuman strength. A lot. They are the out of control. The last witness was Their comically bad, actually. garbled. They, uh, it doesn't make sense. They can't answer questions. 
that's what they call the delirium, someone who is delirious. So I'm very familiar with uh, not only pre-hospital, but in the hospital, the symptoms of excited delirium. We saw part of the testimony Doctor, we missed at the beginning of the afternoon. You, we'll uh, wrap that up after this guy gets signed. Exhibit 921 for identification purposes. So, about half of so I want to show it to you, and then let me ask you a couple of questions. Is this a, uh, a demonstrative you created showing the 10 signs of excited delirium? Uh, uh, yes, sir, it is. Actually, it's from the American College of Emergency Physicians uh, white paper on excited delirium. And incidentally, before we show this to the jury, or at least I offer it, uh, is excited delirium considered a controversial diagnosis? Uh, yes, sir, it is. Uh, why? Why is that? It's because there Wolfgang, are thank you, brother. varying opinions as to what causes it. What is it? Uh, forensic pathologists, or emergency physicians, or other physicians, uh, there isn't a hundred percent agreement on what excited delirium is. Um, but I can tell you, at least in my opinion, I think it is it is real. But are there very reputable medical organizations that do not recognize it? That is correct. The American Medical Association doesn't recognize it. The uh, American Psychiatric Association doesn't recognize it. Oh, excuse me. I thought I had myself muted. So you are all for Exhibit 921 for demonstrative purposes. It's a GGWP. Thank you, man. Good contribution. Twisted Puppet, good to see you as well. Members of the jury will not go back with you on deliberation. And, Your Honor, I... Uh, uh, happened by accident to uh, manage to scratch on the screen. So, <laughs> uh, well, so if you honor could, uh, in the mic. thank you. You got that off the of spin, dude. Uh, You're fucking lucky as fuck with the spins. So, dude. if we could uh, walk through uh, each of these, we'll go through them one by one, and I'd like for you, with each one, to explain what it is, and then uh, explain how it applies to George Floyd. So, l let's start with the number one: inappropriate clothing, uh, naked or partially clothed. Um, what is the significance of this one? How does it manifest? When we get a call of a naked man in the street, first thing I'm thinking is excited delirium. Why? Well, why does, would somebody take off their clothes? Well, their body is hot. So in the case of Mr. Floyd, was he appropriately dressed or inappropriately dressed for the weather? And in the case of Mr. Floyd, I think the temperature was in the 70s, and he's appropriately dressed. Therefore, I mean, yeah, this I guess. does not apply to Mr. Floyd. So what about the second one? Attraction to glass, destruction of glass, mirrors, lights on vehicles. This is another uh, sign of, that someone with excited delirium, they're attracted to glass, to lights, and mirrors. Sometimes they will kick, punch, try to break the glass, break the mirrors, because for some reason their brain says that is a threat to them. When you watch the video of Mr. Floyd in the, uh, the, the store, glass all around him. Um, was he attracted to any glass on the counter, in the windows? No. So in Mr. Floyd's case, doesn't apply either. So you eliminated the second one? Yes, sir, I did. What about the failure to respond Sherry to police presence? Never heard what that does before. that mean? That means when an officer gives you a command to do something, you don't even hear it. You're going on. When we watch the video 
of the officer asking Mr. Floyd to go to the uh, sidewalk, sit down. Does he comply? Absolutely, he complies. Does not apply to Mr. Floyd. Because you saw him being responsive to the police. He was responsive, answering appropriate questions, giving appropriate answers. Number four, constant or near constant physical activity. What does that mean? That means these individuals are sped up. Their body is going 90 miles an hour. And in this case, what do we see um, Mr. Floyd do? He sits down. He's able to sit down. You know, he's not going 90 miles an hour. His activity level isn't constant. So you can cross that one off the list. I saw no evidence of it. I'm sorry, sir. I said you saw no evidence of it. I saw absolutely no evidence of that, sir. Number five, not tiring despite heavy exertion. This again, these people can run a marathon. If you have police officers chasing them, they're outrunning uh, the police. These people go and go and go. Why? Because they're sped up. Uh, in this case, did we see Mr. Floyd tire? Absolutely, we saw him tire. We saw him tired to the point where he stopped breathing. So, does it apply in this case? No, it does not. Number six, unexpected or unusual strength. These people are described as having superhuman strength. They're throwing police officers off right and left. Somebody my size is throwing people off right and left. What do we see in this case? Is Mr. Floyd able to throw those police officers off that have him on the ground? No, he's not. So in this case, it does not apply. Uh, number What's, seven, unaffected huh? by pain. When we listen to the tapes, do we hear Mr. Floyd complain of pain? Absolutely, we do. Pain in his neck, pain in his face, pain in his back. My neck, uh, he's my complaining back. of pain. So does this apply to Mr. Floyd? Absolutely not. Um, if, if Mr. Floyd did not complain of pain, we could add it into the list. But in this case, he's complaining of pain from the time he gets on the ground. Does not apply. Number eight, very rapid breathing. These individuals will have a breathing rate 30 to 40 times a minute. Very rapid breathing. When I watched the videotape and counted uh, Mr. Floyd's respirations at different points, you know, it was at one point it was zero, but the other times it's you know, 15 to 20, 22, 23 in that range. By breathing criteria, he does not meet the excited delirium criteria. What about number nine, excessive heat or hot to touch? Couple ways to assess this. And did you see uh, evidence of excessive sweating? What did the emergency, uh, the ER docs describe when Mr. Floyd presented to the ER? He was cool to touch. When these patients come into the ER, their temperatures, you touch them, they are hot. They could be 104, 105, 106, even 107 degrees uh, temperature. Mr. Floyd was cool to touch does not apply. And then the excessive sweating, number 10. Again, because when your body gets hot, when your temperature goes up, what does your body want to do? It wants to sweat to cool you down. 
So when I watch the video, do I see evidence of sweating on Mr. Floyd? No, it's not there. So again, does not apply. So Dr. Smock, if we have to have a minimum of six of these items, six of 10 for excited delirium, how many did you see? Zip. So I want to talk with you about uh, another potential cause for death that you may have considered, I think, eliminated, which is drug overdose. Yes, sir. Uh, are you familiar with the toxicology results in this case? Yes, sir, I am. Uh, just to remind us, what were the levels of uh, fentanyl and methamphetamine uh, in Mr. Floyd's uh, blood? And you can check your report or notes if you need yes, to. Yes, I've got the autopsy report here. The uh, fentanyl level was 11. The metabolite of fentanyl called norfentanyl was 5.6, and the methamphetamine level was 19. Those are all what's called nanograms per milliliter. That's just the measurement that the lab uses. Well, focusing on fentanyl, uh, you, you have lots of experience treating patients uh, suffering from opioid overdose. Yes, sir, I do. Uh, can you explain what, what fentanyl intoxication looks like I support women, and ladies and gentlemen. I had to grab the yes. Girl Scout cookies. Uh-oh. Fentanyl. I had to do it to them. Uh, kind of work backwards. What? But fentanyl overdose. Because it's a narcotic, in excessive amounts, it can kill you because it will cause your respiratory rate to go to nothing. That's how you die with a narcotic overdose. You cease to breathe. With fentanyl toxicity, you're looking at somebody who is high, who is aware. They're not somosis of demence, you fucking. So there's a big difference. Yep. So how do you differentiate fentanyl intoxication versus fentanyl overdose? What is that patient doing right in front of your eyes? Look at them. Are they awake, alert, talking, breathing normally, or are they getting sleepy? Their respirations getting less, or are they not breathing at all? That's how you differentiate, just by looking, even without a lab report. Look at what that patient is doing. So like in the, the case of a fentanyl overdose, are there certain... I got uh, one tell box of peanut butter, but I like the thin mints the best. Yes, they are... Um, pupils can be constricted, and they're snoring, their respirations are decreasing, or they're not respiring at all. I only had four. I should be given a medal. Now, bringing this home to uh, George Floyd, uh, when uh, they came Not to I the scene on May 25th, the paramedics, uh, do you recall whether his pupils were constricted or not? I believe they were dilated. Uh, sorry, do you know Chad. what the concept of air hunger is? Yes, sir, I do. Would you tell us what that is? Air hunger, the um, best application is... Um, you are wanting to breathe. For some reason, um, one example would be it's if hard you not drowning, to clear out a whole sleeve of them. You're going to yeah. do everything you can to get to the surface because you want to breathe. They're so good. Another application that I frequently deal with is someone who has been strangled. When their airway has been cut off and they can't breathe, their body is telling them to breathe, but they can't because of the pressure on their airway. They need to cut that off is, your hunger that Calm is over. the human desire to they are smaller than they used to be sherry to breathe. the actual so cookies when George are smaller Floyd is saying you're right Please, i can't breathe i can't breathe is that an example of air hunger that is an absolute example of air hunger
Would you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury whether fentanyl overdose causes air hunger? Uh, no, it does not. Um, the only time it could is if you've overdosed, and but it's not air hunger because you are going to sleep. You're not hungry at all. You're sleeping. So there is a difference between air hunger, that, that drive to bring in that air, versus an overdose. So with, with an overdose, if it's not air hunger that a fentanyl overdose causes, does fentanyl simply diminish the drive to breathe at all? And uh, at therapeutic levels, no. At an overdose level, yes, it can decrease the drive to breathe if you have too much. But you're not starving for air. You're not starving for air. Doctor, in the case of a, a fentanyl overdose, you talked about uh, a person going to sleep or snoring even. Uh, before death ensues from a fentanyl overdose, um, is a coma state reached? Yes, you, someone who uh, is asleep, you could say they look like they're in a coma state. They're not moving. So that's what you would see with an overdose. You, you've watched the, the various uh, videos uh, with uh, George Floyd's encounter with, with the police on May 25th. Multiple times. Can, can you tell the jury from having looked at those videos, can you tell by looking at that alone whether George Floyd was suffering from a fentanyl overdose? He is not. I mean, when you watch those videos and you, we go through them, what is his respiration? He's breathing. He's talking. He's not snoring. He is saying, you know, please, please get off of me. I want to breathe. I can't breathe. That is not a fentanyl overdose. That is somebody begging to breathe. And so if, uh, if a person cert, uh, is suffering from a fentanyl overdose, would you describe that person then as alert? No, sir. They are not going to be alert. They're going to be sleeping. Would you describe them as oriented? Uh, no, they're going to be, their brain is going to be in sleep mode or Lenane, good to see you. not breathing mode. And was George Floyd oriented? Oh, he was. He gave appropriate responses. Name, date of birth. He knew where he was and what was happening. He knew exactly where he was, what he was doing, and responding appropriately to the questions that were asked of him. Was he? Uh, have you, you mean when ever encountered a situation of a fentanyl overdose where a uh, person was in the overdose uh, displaying That doesn't sound like George Floyd at all. And uh, essentially crying out for their life or crying out in pain? No, sir. Uh, now, did you, from your review of the medical records and other data uh, in the case, get some sense of what Mr. Floyd's history uh, was with respect to opioid use? Yes, sir, I did. When you look at the medical record, Mr. Floyd has been a chronic user, uh, meaning what I saw was uh, for years. And, and how would this correlate to the notion of tolerance we talked about at first? The more you use any drug, alcohol, in this case fentanyl, tolerance, so it takes more drug to give you that high to affect your brain um, and in this case we actually had a, a visit to the emergency department where he took seven or eight uh, 
narcotic pills. They watched him and let him go. Uh, was there any use of either oxycodone or uh, Percocet uh, that might be relevant to the discussion of tolerance? Yes, there was the, when he presented to the emergency department, he said he may have taken Percocet or uh, oxys, oxycodone. Um, so what does that have to do with tolerance to fentanyl? Uh-oh, did it stop? Uh, it's they both, both oxycodone uh, work on the same receptors in the brain, the, what's called the mu receptor. So uh, they both attach to that and stimulate that receptor. So this is what we call cross-tolerance. They, if they both work on the same receptor, in the matrix. either one is going to give you uh, an effect, depending on the quantity that the brain sees. In terms of the population of patients you've treated for opioid uh, issues, are you able to generally characterize what the range of the opioid levels um, has been in living patients? Yes, I have, sir. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Um, um, what I've come to in clinical practice is you don't rely on the level to tell you how much it's impacted a particular patient. You look at that patient because I've seen patients that could have a low level, but I can see patients with fentanyl levels 100, 120, 140, um, and they're walking and talking. So the level says, yes, it's there, but based upon their prior history of use, chronic use, does that particular level affect them or not? So how relevant then was the, the level of the methamphetamine found in Mr. Floyd's uh, blood to your analysis of the cause of death? Uh, methamphetamine or fentanyl? Uh, methamphetamine. This methamphetamine. Um, with methamphetamine, it's really a, a nothing level. It's a level you expect to see with a recreational use of methamphetamine. And, and clinically, that's a extremely low level. So I want to switch to topics and talk about uh, the cause of death you did find related to asphyxia or low oxygen. Yes, sir. Are you familiar with certain myths uh, that uh, exist around uh, the indicators for death by asphyxia or low oxygen? Yes, sir, I am. Uh, do you, in fact, teach your students regarding some of these myths? Yes, the, because strangulation is a form of asphyxia. Um, this is part of every class I teach. What are the myths associated with strangulation, with asphyxia, what you see, what you don't see, and why you see something or why you don't see something? Uh, for, for example, in your teaching of your students, uh, what do you I teach them regarding inferences too. that can be made by the presence or absence of bruising on the body in autopsy? Uh, bruising. You can be fatally strangled, die of asphyxia, and have no bruising. The presence or absence of a bruise on a human body is dependent upon multiple different variables. How much pressure is applied? How is that pressure is applied? How frequently is that pressure applied? And the example that I like to use is you can have someone put your bicep and forearm on either side of your neck and squeeze, render you unconscious, even kill you. 
and you will never ever see a bruise on the neck. And the reason is you're applying a broad surface area, bicep and forearm, to a broad surface area, which is different if I were to take, say, this lanyard, put it around somebody's neck and pull tight, I'm putting same amount of pressure but in a smaller area. And I would expect to see a ligature mark or something. So it's, there are lots of variables that will dictate whether you have a bruise or you don't. Condition of health, if you have any medications that cause you to bruise easier, aspirin, other medications. So you can be, that's this myth that you can, you have to have bruises to prove strangulation. No, you don't. You can be strangled to death and have no bruises. So that's one of the big myths. Uh, Dr. Smock, can you tell us what a petechial hemorrhage is? Ah, yes, petechial hemorrhage. Petechial hemorrhages are ruptured capillaries. Little, when, when you see them on a patient, they're little red dots. And what petechial hemorrhages come from is rupture of the okay. capillary bed. Come over. They're popped. And the way I like to think about a petechial hemorrhage is like it's a little water balloon. And what happens when I put too much water into a balloon? It pops. What happens if I put too much blood into a capillary? It pops. So what, uh, what does the presence or absence of petechial hemorrhages tell us about whether a person did or did not die of asphyxia or low oxygen? Uh, it tells us uh, nothing because in order to create that ruptured capillary, there are two physiologic things that have to occur in the human body. One, I have to have the venous return, in, in the case of the neck, the jugular vein blocked. And how does that happen? Well, I'm putting pressure on the neck. The second thing that has to happen is I have to have blood still being pumped into the area of the body, that capillary bed. So if both those two criteria aren't met, blockage of a vein with blood continuing to be pumped in, I will never ever get a petechial hemorrhage. So you, again, you can be fatally strangled and not have petechial hemorrhage because if those two physiologic criteria aren't met, it will never happen. So doctor, I wanna show you uh, a few of the video clips uh, as relates to your uh, conclusion that Mr. Floyd passed away uh, from asphyxia or low oxygen. So I want to play the clip and then tell me how it was significant to your decision making. Uh, so if we could uh, pull up um, Exhibit 127, already in evidence, Brett, at uh, 2021. Yes, stopping at 2021, I'm sorry, Brett. Starting at the beginning. On the ground. On the ground. Right. You got your uh, oh. 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 restraint. Okay. Now the audio. Did they mute that? Are they muting it on their end? See this. Is okay. Stop moving. Mama. 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 Mama.
Mama. One of the front pouches. Mama. On my right side bag. Mama. Mama. Oh my God. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this, man. Mama, I love you. Reese, I love you. You got hobble? my kids, I love you. So is this a segment, uh, Dr. Smock, that you uh, listened to and observed? Yes, this is one of the segments. Why is this relevant to your assessment? Well, what's important to the assessment is what's happening over the entire length of the video. Um, in particular, this first section, what we're looking at is listen to Mr. Floyd's voice. He's speaking with full volume. And then I want you, as we go through these different segments, compare what we're hearing now to what we hear later how his voice changes. So, he, go ahead, no, please, okay. finish your answer. Uh, I'm sorry. So, um, I want you to also look at the positioning of the uh, Mr. Floyd, where is he? Where do we see pressure being applied to his neck, to his upper back, to his lower back? What's also very important is as this progresses, and you know, this is, is this is, a progression over you know, four and a half, five minutes of Mr. Floyd gradually decreasing his ability to survive. And what you'll see, and, and this is a great, I don't know if I can, does this work, Circle? It, it does. Okay. Um, what I want you to also watch for is what is his right arm doing as this progresses? You will see him pushing against the tire. You'll see his right arm, his elbow, pushing against. Let's ask another question. Uh, well, I'd like to know, you circled an area here on uh, on this exhibit. Ask what is question. It? Sorry, Judge. Go ahead and ask the question. Yes, I'd like to know what is it showing us? Why this, is that significant? This is very important because it's showing what Mr. Floyd is doing to try and breathe to get his right side of his chest up off of the pavement so that he can bring in air. So let's look at another um, segment. Uh, Brad, if we can go to start at 2021. You still? Oh. Yeah, no, oh. What do you want? I can't breathe. Please leave my dick. I can't breathe shit. Uh -huh. Bro, get up, get in the car, oh. man. I will. Get up, get in the car. I can't move. I'll be white in the hole. Ah. Ah. Get up, get in the car. Mama. Get up. Mama. I can't. Get up, get in the car. Is that the... You can't breathe. My knee. You can't neck. Man. Like I'm through. I know you're in there. Uh, you didn't listen. My stomach hurts. Uh -huh. My neck hurts. Uh -huh. Everything hurts. Uh, there's water or something. Please. Please. Uh -huh. I can't breathe. I'm good. They're talking. They're yelling. They will kill me, man. Uh -huh. 
takes a heck of a lot of oxygen to... Come on, man. Look at his nose. Oh. 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 Yeah, that's that guy berating them in the background. That's Jeff Cobb. Okay, they muted it again. I think that's on their end. I'm not digging that anymore. Where is the fucking... That pisses me off. Why do they keep doing that? So, Dr. Smock, as you listen to that segment, that was one that you chose um, to... Uh, play for the jury what was significant about that what we're seeing again is and if you're listening his voice is now getting gradually weaker as we're going through this he is telling the officers I'm about to die I am through um, he's watching his body move turning his face actually into the pavement to try and get more oxygen in this is the progression as we go step by step and deeper into lower levels of oxygen in Mr. Floyd's blood. We also have um, using his elbow to try and leverage his chest up. So, uh, Doctor, in addition to the subdual and restraint that we see there uh, on the street in the, the video, uh, was there other evidence, uh, including physical evidence, that supported your conclusion that Mr. Floyd uh, died of low oxygen or asphyxia? Um, yes, as I think it'll probably be in the next section as we go through, you will hear his voice get weaker and weaker. You will see his lose facial expression. Uh, you will hear him make sounds of trying to breathe as we get closer. He then goes unconscious. You will then see in the next section, he has what's called an anoxic seizure. That's a fancy word for his brain is going without oxygen very low, his legs shake, but you're also, you will actually see and you can hear the handcuff shake and you'll see the body camera shake uh, when he has an anoxic seizure uh, Culture War, what's up, brother? Were there uh, visible injuries uh, to him as well that you could see, Dr. Smock? Yes, the 500 live on left Trovo. shoulder was ground into the pavement from the pressure from behind. The left side of his face on YouTube. deep abrasions Almost from 800 his face live. being pushed into the pavement. So in the uh, interest of time this afternoon, I won't show the additional video, uh, Dr. Smock, and, and I want to ask you about a different subject, and, uh, and that relates to uh, CPR. Um, could you tell us uh, about uh, the importance of timing with respect to performing CPR? The sooner we start compressions and ventilations, uh, the higher, the more successful our resuscitation rates will be. 
At what point should CPR have been commenced with respect to Mr. Floyd? Way before it was, as soon as Mr. Floyd is unconscious, he should have been rolled over. Uh, we have documentation on the video that the officer says, I can't find a pulse. Why, that's clearly, but when you look at the video, it should have been started way before, should have been rolled over, checked his respirations, but clearly when they can't find a pulse, CPR should have been started. Thank you, Dr. Smock. No further questions. Here we go. Mr. Nelson. Good afternoon, Dr. Smock. Good afternoon, sir. Thank you for being here with us <clears throat> this evening. Uh, fair to say you're not a pathologist, correct? That is correct, sir. You are uh, not trained in anatomic pathology? Um, no, it is part of my forensic training, but I'm not and don't consider myself an anatomic pathologist. And you're not trained in forensic pathology, correct? Uh, I trained by forensic pathologist because that is part of my training. So yes, I am trained in forensic pathology as it applies to the living patient. And you're not board certified in forensic pathology? That is correct. You practice emergency medicine, right? That is correct, sir. And uh, that has, you have some experience in, again, as you described, forensics for the living, right? That is correct, sir. Um, do you, in addition to your practice, stay abreast of the medical literature in terms of uh, forensic pathology? Uh, I do. I'll get, be right back, uh, ladies and gentlemen. The Journal of Forensic As we head medicine. towards the home stretch. And um, how many autopsies have you performed? Um, physically performed as what's called the Diener. I don't know, 100. Um, how many autopsies have I attended? Thousands. Okay. Um, you would agree that methamphetamine and fentanyl, uh, when combined, it produces a different result? Uh, they may, depending upon the level and the individual. So there are variables, but essentially methamphetamine and fentanyl combined uh, is different than a reaction to fentanyl? That is correct, sir. All right. And um, you would agree that in emergency rooms, uh, in, of late, the number of deaths related to the methamphetamine and fentanyl combination have increased. Um, I can't speak of at late, but it wouldn't surprise me, sir. All right. And um, that type of a death, methamphetamine and fentanyl, is a much different type of a death than a simple fentanyl, or not, not a simple fentanyl, but a fentanyl exclusive death. Uh, again, depending upon the level, yes, sir. The level and the individual person, right? That is correct, sir. There is no safe level of methamphetamine, right? Come over uh, to you. No. Um, or there is a safe level of amphetamine, um, people with ADD. Right. 
but in terms of street level, street purchased methamphetamine, there would be no uh, valid medical basis to have that in your system. Um, that is correct for methamphetamine. Now you talked a little bit about the coma state in fentanyl overdoses that you would expect. What's the duration you would expect to see of a fentanyl, a coma state in a fentanyl overdose? Uh, that's all going to depend upon how much fentanyl uh, is in that individual system. How quickly do we get um, Narcan uh, on board? Um, so multiple variables, sir. Lots of variables. Um, you talk about positional asphyxia and you've reviewed the autopsy. Did you see any medical autopsy or physical, excuse me, any physical evidence from the autopsy that can point to Mr. Floyd's airway being obstructed? Uh, no, sir, not in the autopsy. And um, while Mr. Floyd initially was on the ground, he was uh, talking, right? As he was, sir. And he at points raised his head, agreed? Uh, yes, sir. And he, for some period of time, was alert, correct? Yes, sir, he was. He was coherent, as you he described? Was, and he was making sense? Yes, sir. What is the evidence found at autopsy of significant force that was used to keep him in the prone position? The evidence was not at autopsy. It is on the videotape, sir. Okay. You were talking about how Mr. Floyd maintained uh, or stated that he could not breathe while uh, in the prone position. That is correct, sir. He stated that before uh, ever being in the prone position as well, correct? That is correct, sir. Several times, correct? That is correct, sir. Oh, so it was all from the video, huh? Is that what we're hearing? Shocking. At that point, when he stated that he can't breathe and he's in the back seat of the car, there was no one on his back, right? That is correct, sir. And do you know whether at that point there's any evidence to suggest that there was a respiratory depressant such as fentanyl on, on board in his system? Uh, no, sir. Okay. Um, have you been advised, I mean, I know you prepared a report, but have you been advised uh, that um, partially ingested pills were located in the back seat of squad 320 and they contained Mr. Floyd's DNA? Yes, sir, it was. And you were advised that uh, those pills were a methamphetamine and fentanyl combination? That is correct, sir. A little meth-fent combo. People who have their respiration suppressed as a result of fentanyl don't necessarily all the time die, right? That is correct, sir. Hopefully they don't die. Treating uh, people in the ER, you have treated people with cardiac diseases? Yes, sir, I have. And in terms of uh, your treatment of people with cardiac diseases, have you encountered people who have a combination of methamphetamine and fentanyl? Yes, sir, I am. And obviously every single person is unique, correct? Yes, sir. And you've experienced people who have cardiac disease, fentanyl, and methamphetamine who pass away? 
Um, yes, sir. Not necessarily from those, but maybe from something else. And but sometimes it could just be from those, right? Um, would depend upon the case. Right. I was talking about cat. I was trying to get him to come over here. Uh, you treat people with COVID at the ER? Um, I don't, but I've treated police officers with COVID, sir. Um, you are you aware that people who are uh, in the ICU with COVID are oftentimes held in the prone position? Yes, sir. And that actually assists them in their oxygenation, correct? That is correct, sir. And they don't necessarily suffer sudden death, right? That is correct, sir. Those people may not be moving around very Acorn, much. Acorn, Memphis, thank you both. Yeah, during the ICU, Memphis. they are probably not moving around very much. Methamphetamine um, certainly has an effect on the heart, right? Uh, cancer. I mean, one of this, you're aware that methamphetamine can be prescribed, correct? Um, amphetamine can be prescribed. Amphetamine can be prescribed. One of the side effects of the prescription amphetamine is sudden heart arrhythmias, right? Uh, depending upon the level, that is certainly a, it's a rare side effect, but it's certainly possible, sir. You talked about um, the, the pressure that somebody may, uh, the, the lack of bruising, right, is explained by kind of the surface area of the pressure that's applied, right? That is one of the variables, sir. Right. That's correct. And a knee has a relatively small surface area compared to, say, the entirety of the arm, right? That you described? Um, uh, no, actually, if you think about the size of a knee on a neck, that's comparable, sir. Okay. And you, uh, you would agree that um, in this particular case, when you met with, or you met with prosecutors several times, right? Uh, yes, I have, sir. And um, eight thirty-two, watching live. Let's go. Let's go, Nelson. Let's go. Generally speaking, Mr. Chauvin did not block both carotid arteries, right? That is correct, sir. And he may not have even blocked one of the carotid arteries, right? Um, that's hard to know. What? Okay. Um, but it's, he could have blocked one of the the arteries. Could and have, even maybe. if he had, there would be what's called collateral flow, correct? That is correct. Okay. And so the, the uh, person, it, it would be very difficult to render someone unconscious by blocking oh, one you. of the carotid arteries. Nick Fan, 99, very kind. As long as they have that 10 gifted subs, let's go! Let's go, let's go! We'll go up one of the other arteries in the neck. And, and generally speaking, um, in order to render someone unconscious, uh, by blocking the carotid artery, you need to block both carotid arteries, right? That is Hell correct. yeah, thank you so and much, man. When very that kind happens, of you. that happens very quickly, right? That is correct, sir. Less than 10 seconds. That is correct. You've reviewed the videos uh, many times. I have, sir. Uh, spent a lot of time kind of studying and analyzing the videos. Yes, sir. Um, how many hours would you estimate that you had uh, <clears throat> spent analyzing the videos? Um, Ten. Okay. And you were able to see uh, this incident from multiple different camera perspectives, right? That is correct, sir. 
if Mr. Chauvin's knee was uh, placed at the posterior base of the neck, right? That wouldn't have much effect on his diaphragm, would it? Uh, no, sir. You work with police officers quite regularly? Every day, sir. And you've, uh, I'm assuming you said you've gone to uh, SWAT. Beyond SWAT, the ruins, thank uh, you for the host. Tactical kind of places right? or, or to arrests, right? Yes, sir. And I assume that you have observed police officers use a prone handcuffing technique. $3,000 yes, to watch sir. videos, and this guy got. I assume got. that you've observed police officers use a prone control I'm technique. That's even a better day than me. I think it's within its scope of expertise, but it is beyond the scope of direct. So if you could ask non-leading questions. So part of your uh, expertise and training with police officers, uh, you train them in terms of how to properly train people in terms of positional asphyxia? Yes, sir, I do. And how to avoid positional asphyxia from occurring? Yes, it's really not how to cause position, but how does a police officer avoid causing positional asphyxia? And so based on your experience in training police officers and your experience it, accompanying police officers to various arrest locations, you have observed police officers use a prone handcuffing technique. Yes, I have for short periods of time, sir. And you've observed them place their knee in the posterior, the base of the neck, right? Uh, yes, again, for short periods of time, sir. And it obviously depends on every circumstance and situation, right? I don't understand your question, sir. I'll withdraw was there bruising on Mr. Floyd's back that you were aware of? No, sir, there was not. Bruising in his neck? No, sir. Either. Uh, no bruising anywhere? Above the skin really? or below the skin? Mm, that's curious. No, sir, there was not. That's curious. There's unquestionable evidence that Mr. Floyd had cardiovascular disease, correct? That is correct, sir. Press one if Chauvin should take the stand. That, uh, the pathologist who performed the autopsy found a 90% blockage of the right coronary artery? Yes, sir. In your uh, experience as an emergency room physician, you could refer someone to have a, a procedure to open that up, right? If they are exhibiting signs of a heart attack or cardiac ischemia, meaning they're not getting oxygen to that part of the heart. And that's called a stent? That is correct, sir. I know too is the, the purpose of is that is just to actually normal answer, but increase or improve the blood flow through the arteries. Right? I keep it out. I keep it open as an option for sure. Because when you have a blocked vessel, uh, that can lead to a heart attack. Because right? they haven't portrayed as like the psycho blocked. killer. That is correct, sir. Completely blocked. Uh, lead to a cardiac event, right? It is completely blocked. That is correct, sir. And when it's not completely blocked, it forces the heart to work harder. Um, yes, sir. Oftentimes, people go through substantial risks of heart surgery to have that fixed, right? To have the, the a partial blockage fixed. That is correct, sir. You've reviewed all of his uh, previous medical records that were made available to you, Mr. Floyd's. That is. Yes, sir. I have. And um, high blood pressure from these hospital admissions was noted, correct? Uh, that is correct, sir. 
there's uh, no dispute that methamphetamine was in his system at the time of this incident? Uh, that I was at, yes, he had a very low level, sir. Methamphetamine increases the heart rate? Uh, it can, sir. So again, it increases the demand on the heart, right? Absolutely, cancer. If you had, uh, well, I'll strike that. You were aware that Mr. Floyd had engaged in a struggle with police before he was placed in the prone position, right? Yes, sir, we did. That uh, type of physical exertion also puts a certain demand on the heart, right? Uh, it can, sir. You, when you observe that struggle, you could observe his vein pulsing? No, sir, I did not. Kind of that kind of physical exertion of struggling with a couple of police officers, would you say that that's similar to something like what's called a stress test, sort of putting the heart through that physical exertion? Uh, no, sir, that would not be comparable to a stress test. What is a stress test? A stress test is when you're put on a treadmill and you're hooked up to uh, monitors and then the you go faster and faster and then the level of the treadmill can go up and up and up and up. So similarly, when you're struggling with uh, police officers, your heart rate's gonna go up and up and up and up, right? Uh, your heart rate, but again, that is not a stress test, sir. Understood. Yeah, it's actually worse. People than have had like uh, cardiac yeah, arrhythmias during struggles with police before. Yes, sir. What's the physiological mechanism of a person suffering a brain injury from hypoxia? When the brain levels of oxygen start going down, certain things will happen. Their level of consciousness will begin to decrease. When they get to the point where their oxygen level is very low, then they will have that anoxic seizure, as we saw with the shaking of the leg and the shaking of the, um, the wrists. And then as time goes by, more brain cells die. For every second the brain goes without oxygen, low levels, millions of neurons and cells will die. So what happens when you get to that state? You have brain damage, and then if it's not uh, alleviate whatever the cause is, then you die. So again, brain damage can occur from low oxygen. That is correct, sir. When Mr. Floyd was speaking, to the police officers, right? As he was in the prone position, do you see any evidence that his brain was injured at that point? Um, which part? Because he speaks in full sentences or full voice early, but later on his speech is weaker and weaker until there's no speech. So which window are we talking about? At any point when he's speaking with uh, police officers, would there be brain damage at that point? Not while he's speaking, sir. 
Can people suffer brain injuries while they're conscious? Um, depending upon the mechanism, stroke would be an example. Hitting the head would be another example. Lee Yates, thank you, sir. Is that the video you sent earlier, same one? Oh, it's a different one, okay. I'll get those at the end. I missed that earlier. Damn it, why can't I copy from... One question I wanted to ask you, you talked a little bit about um, tolerance, right? And okay, how I can copy. people can build gotcha. a tolerance, particularly to opiates, relatively quickly. Quickly, right? No, I didn't say quickly. Okay. Well, people build a tolerance, right? Yes, sir. And you've defined, and you're not a toxicologist, correct? No, sir, I'm not. Cash app, gang, but you have gang. some general familiarity Thank based you. on your experience as an emergency room doctor, people who are tolerant to particular substances, right? That is correct. And when someone stops using a controlled substance for a period of time, that tolerance dissipates. Agreed? And that is correct, sir. And with certain types of controlled substances, tolerance dissipates very quickly. Um, Specifically fentanyl. I'm not familiar how quickly it decreases or increases. So a person's um, tolerance is situation. Let me rephrase. Somebody there wasn't even a bruise on this guy's neck anywhere? What? tolerance could be built up over an extended period of time. Agreed? That is correct, sir. Tolerance, once that stop, once a person stops using that controlled substance, their tolerance dissipates. That is correct. And over, over some period of some time. Some period of time, that is correct, sir. Could be days, could be weeks, could be months. Um, in my experience, it's going to be weeks to months, not days, sir. So if someone's not using a controlled substance for several months, or let's say two to three months, and then they, they're going to lose that tolerance, agreed? Uh, some part of it, they may, depending upon the substance. And then if they start using again, right, they're going to start to build that tolerance yeah, up. Yeah, he sounds a little unsure now, isn't he? That is correct, sir. But if they had a chronic use for a long period of time, they've decreased their tolerance to some degree, once they start using again, they're not going to just instantly jump back up to the same tolerance level. Yeah, our objective is questions Overruled on that ground. Yes, as the human, the tolerance is occurring in the brain. As you see, smacking them around, levels, that tolerance will change over time. Smart getting smacked. Did you see any evidence in terms of his autopsy or medical records that he had any history of lung disease, Mr. Floyd, that is? Uh, I believe he had history of COVID. Okay. Um, other than COVID, any other, essentially he would have had healthy lungs by all. Yeah, I don't recall specifically any lung disease. But there was evidence of heart disease, right? That is correct, sir. When someone is experiencing, again, based on your experience, experiencing an arrhythmia, um, they would also experience that sensation of a shortness of breath? Uh, it depends on the nature of the arrhythmia. 
when someone is experiencing a heart attack, right, because their vessels are blocked and the stress on their heart is increased, would they describe that shortness of breath? You got an objection uh, relevance to George Floyd? Overruled. Overruled. Patients can complain of shortness of breath while they're having a heart attack. That is correct, sir. You heard the officers ask him if he were on controlled substances? Uh, I believe it was, are you on something? Right. This person at a greater risk for cardiorespiratory effects if they're under the influence of methamphetamine? Uh, it would depend upon the level, sir. How about a combination of methamphetamine and fentanyl? Again, it's going to depend upon the level, sir. Memphis, thank you. Cardiac disease have any relation to methamphetamine use, chronic methamphetamine use? Uh, yes, sir. Mm, I see. Hey, too many drugs! Allegedly. Allegedly. I have no further questions, Your Honor. Oh, is that going to be it? Oh, they're going to redirect. They're going to redirect. Or are they? Meth, meth. Dr. Smock, you were asked Good quite a few heart. questions about uh, heart disease and high blood pressure. Uh, I want to bring this home to Mr. Floyd. Uh, and that is whether we're talking about blockage of the artery, high blood pressure, any of it. Um, was there any evidence that you saw that George Floyd had a heart attack? Dreadnought, thank you. There was absolutely no evidence at autopsy of anything that suggested that Mr. Floyd had a heart attack. And that's whether he had a clogged artery to have a heart attack? That is correct. There's no evidence of a blood clot in any of the arteries. There's no evidence of hemorrhage from a uh, ruptured plaque. There's no evidence that Mr. Floyd had a heart attack. What about on the autopsy report? Was there any evidence that George Floyd had a heart attack? No, sir, there was not. You were asked questions about whether there was a lethal or fatal arrhythmia. Remember those? I remember those, sir. Uh, if somebody has a fatal arrhythmia that they die from, is that a sudden death? It is, sir. As in, I have the arrhythmia, and that's it? You have the arrhythmia, and then you're unconscious. Uh, did George Floyd have a sudden death that looked like an arrhythmia? No, sir. He had a gradual decrease levels of oxygen over the course of minutes. It wasn't sudden. It was gradual because of the pressure being applied to his back and neck. You, you were asked questions about uh, Mr. Floyd saying, I can't breathe when he was in the back of Squad 320. Remember that? Yes, sir. Did you hear or, or in any of the videos you saw Mr. Floyd saying, I'm getting choked? No, sir. Uh, did you see anything that suggested that in the, in the struggle in the back of the car that anybody had their hands on his neck or throat? Uh, not in the car. Mr. Chauvin did put his hands around his neck as he was getting him out of the car, but not in the car, sir. Right. Obviously, if, if there is someone getting choked, that's a reason they couldn't breathe. Yes, sir. Um, you were uh, asked questions about whether or not the so dual and restraint, uh, Mr. Floyd on the ground, was a stress test. 
Uh, can, can you think of, from any stretch of the imagination, you could refer to being subdued and restrained on the ground for nine minutes and 29 seconds until, your pulse, until the pulse was gone as a stress test? That uh, objection is argumentative is sustained. Next question. Right. So was the subdual and the restraint on the ground a stress test? No, sir, it was not. So they let him, they let him finish that even though it was clearly... Uh, you were asked about uh, whether or not uh, there was any evidence of airway obstruction on autopsy. Uh, was there any evidence of low oxygen on autopsy? Um, only his death, sir. Do you recall Mr. Nelson uh, asking you the question relating to when Mr. Floyd was on the ground, um, was he alert and making sense when he was on the ground? Remember that? Yes, sir, I do. If somebody is alert and making sense, how could they also be intoxicated? Um, that's a good question, sir. You can't. What? And finally, you yes, asked you questions about uh, the combination of meth and fentanyl and so whether they make somehow a different kind of a dangerous combination. Just to be clear with the jurors, did you see any evidence that Mr. Floyd died of Tell a meth Tell me my face overdose? is gone? No, yeah. sir, he did not. Did you see any evidence that he died of a fentanyl overdose? No, sir, he did not. Did you see any evidence putting them together that he died from that kind of an overdose? No, sir, he did not. Thank you, no further questions. Mr. anything further? I think we got a little something. Did you observe any evidence that Mr. Floyd was choked from the front of his neck? No, sir. You would agree that fighting or struggling with police officers puts stress on the heart? Yes, sir, could. There was no other evidence of airway obstruction, correct? Um, other than the asphyxia event? Correct. Other than not being able to breathe, that was the airway obstruction. In terms of, you were asked on redirect uh, about how could someone who is alert and making sense uh, be intoxicated, do you recall that? Yes, sir. Uh, people who are tolerant of a particular controlled substance show fewer signs, correct? Uh, of intoxication? That is correct, sir. So the more you, someone is used to taking a particular drug, the fewer signs of impairment they may exhibit. Agree? That is correct, sir. And someone who gets arrested for a, a chronic alcoholic, hypothetically, who gets obstruct or gets Wait. arrested for driving under the influence. Wait a minute. They may not exhibit the same physical symptoms or speech difficulties that a naive drinker may exhibit. Agreed? Given the same level of alcohol, that is correct, sir. I have no further questions. I think that's going to be it for the day. No we got a little bit to finish up, though. Thank you, Doctor. So don't uh, leave just yet. Have a good flight back. Don't leave just yet. We got no, a little testimony. Thank you for your patience and sticking this out. Uh, we'll start around 9.15 tomorrow if we can. Thank you. We're adjourned. All right, so we do have a little testimony to finish up All right, up Lou here. and Mike Court going to... I don't want to hear what they're talking about. Lord Aragon, thank you for the gifted sub... Also, I have a video to play here. Let's see from Lee over on Cash App. The uh, tag there is Sunset Squad dollar sign Sunset Squad. First, he sent this earlier 
while talking about uh, Mr. Nelson. We had to wait over the break for Nelson. And it was... <laughs> I don't want to wait. It didn't even play. Hold on. Can we... I guess I have to at least play that part. I don't want to wait. How's it go? I don't remember. I don't want to wait. There we go. Okay. All right. Now, let's see here. All right. Now, what else did he send? Okay. He sent this, and he said 106. Okay. All right. Let's see. 106. All right. Let's see. Have you ever had sexual relations with a girl with... Really big breasts. Yes, sir, I did. Mm-hmm. And how did you find it? Very erotic. I was just checking. <laughs> well, a Woody Allen clip there. I don't know if the chat knows <laughs> All right, let's finish up the testimony from earlier that we missed. Where is that? That's not it. There it is. And those can affect this is, uh, the, the elasticity pulmonologist of the lungs, right? Tubin. Not the elasticity. It would be, if it's having any effect, it would be within the sensory receptors within the tracheobronchial three. So it really wouldn't have anything to do with the elasticity. Okay. Now, but we also learned quite a bit about the toxicology as well. Oh, excuse me. Thank On you, the COVID-19, you testified that um, treatment of people with COVID-19 includes leaving them in the prone position, right? Correct. And so those people who would be treated for COVID-19 in the prone position, based on your calculations, you would have a 24% decrease in the EELV. Right. I mean, the, this is people with COVID where they're during the time that they have COVID. Right. But right. You, that's yeah. what you'd expect, that same decrease in the EELV. No, it's going to be very different in somebody who has, say, pneumonia what's going to happen in the prone position will be very variable from one person to the other as a result of the, of the pneumonia. It's different than normal lungs. Okay. So, so in essence, every person is different. Oh, for certain. And now, uh, you calculated uh, his respiratory rate to be 22, right? Correct. And you said that that was within the normal respiratory rate? Yep. And um, you would not describe him as hyperventilating? And the word hyperventilation is open to an awful lot of misinterpretation. That is most certainly not hyperventilation. No. And hyperventilation assists in the removal of carbon dioxide from the... From I was about to play the leprechaun theme. It's not, it's not that simple. In its simplest terms. Uh, in the simplest terms, yes, it does assist. It, it, it gets rid of carbon dioxide. All right. But now, it can be frequently misleading. Okay. Now, in terms of the toxicology of Mr. Uh, Floyd, we did learn that um, there were some controlled substances in his system, right? Yes. Uh, we know that there was, for example, um, nicotine, right? Yes. Mr. Floyd was a smoker. Correct. And smoking changes the lung function. Agreed? In some people. Now, we also learned uh, more... And, and Rambo, what's up? Suggesting that people who, all people who smoke have lung problems, right? Less than 10% do. We're wrapping up here, buddy. We ain't going all night. 
Usually from the microphone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No problem. So we, you focused in your direct examination quite a bit in terms of um, fentanyl and the fentanyl's effect on the res respiration rate. Yes. And you would agree generally that fentanyl uh, is a respiratory depressant. It can be. Um, it, it's a it's a used in operating rooms, right? Yes, for yeah. And it's also used in the management of chronic pain, right? That is correct. And medically speaking, those are really the only two reasons that fentanyl would be prescribed. Yes, probably. Um, <clears throat> But you understand that fentanyl has become far more prolific in street drugs, right? Yes, I'm aware. And there's a, you would agree generally that there is a significant difference between fentanyl that's manufactured according to the United States, you know, uh, their uh, whatever rules apply, right? The, the, the pharmaceutical companies make it much differently than the street dealers do, right? And I imagine so. Right. Um, and so when you are, when a person is ingesting illicit street purchased fentanyl, it's, it's a, every time they take a fentanyl dose, it's a different experience for that person. Right, but it, if, if it's affecting the respiratory center, it's going to act through the mu receptors in the medulla oblongata. There's no way around that. Right. It's not, if fentanyl isn't going to have an effect on respiration by some other mechanism. Understood. But the end result of fentanyl can include Respir respiratory depression. Right, through the mu receptors. Right. And we also learned that there was methamphetamine in a low dose in Mr. Uh, Floyd's system, right? Correct. And the fentanyl and the methamphetamine, they can kind of counteract each other, right? Well, I mean, they're upper and downers, but I mean, but in terms of the respiratory centers, there is not going to be. So the methamphetamine would not I mean, the methamphetamine is going to increase the heart rate, right? That's a different thing than the respiratory symptoms. Understood. Yeah. But that's going to, methamphetamine will increase a person's heart rate, right? Yes. That's one of the side effects. Yes. And there are a few uh, lawfully, uh, there are a few conditions where a physician can lawfully prescribe methamphetamine, right? Yes. But it's exceedingly rare that it's actually done. I, mean, I can't say, but I mean, it, it's definitely a prescribable agent, kind of. It used to be used commonly for... Ah, uh, base it there a little bit. And uh, I think um, ADHD, is that yes. right? Yes. Okay. So, <clears throat> we also know that adrenaline will increase the heart rate, right? Yes. And adrenaline can be put into the body in, <clears throat> in multiple ways, right? Well, sure. let me, let me, there are many things that can cause a surge in adrenaline. Yes. One of those things would be getting into a fight with someone. Yes. Or being afraid. Difficult to know in terms of being afraid, but getting into a fight. And the paraganglia, paraganglionoma that was found I understand you call it the 10% tumor, but in 10% of the tumor cases, that can cause an adrenaline surge. Uh, yes, and in the 90% it's wrong. Now, <clears throat> in terms of the use of fentanyl 
in the hospital setting, surgical setting, uh, have you become familiar with a uh, what's called wooden chest syndrome? Yes, I have. And can you explain for the jury what wooden chest in, syndrome is? In some patients with fentanyl, you'll get an increase in chest wall stiffness. So the lungs become less elastic? Not quite the lungs, the chest wall. Okay. So that would prevent a, a chest wall tight or chest wall rigidity will also uh, decrease the performance of the lungs. It will imp impede the ability of the lungs to impact to expand. Now, <clears throat> in your report, you wrote that you would expect the peak depression to occur from fentanyl within five minutes of ingestion right yeah. and um, have you come to learn that uh, tablets were found or, or controlled substances were found in the back seat of squad 320 I mean I've heard reports to that effect I don't know what the, the status of it is All right. so you were not you've not been provided with any additional information since the time you've prepared your report? I No, I, I'm sure that's wrong, but I, I've been provided with a lot of information. I don't necessarily recall it, keep it all um, at, the, at the front of my brain. Okay. Well, <clears throat> yesterday we heard um, testimony from the state crime lab that there were in the back seat of the squad car two partially consumed pills found in the back of squad 320. Objection, to the characterization of testimony. To the characterization of? Oh, well, uh, if it's foundational to your It is. <clears throat> you understand that? No. It's a, okay. I kind of, but not fully. Okay. Yesterday, a chemist from the state crime lab okay. testified in this case. Overruled! It's sustained. You can state in the oh. form of a hypothetical, however. Uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Can we? I can't hear you. The sidebar. Do a little sidebar? Okay. You know what? We don't have to wait for that because... Okay, wait. Hold on. This. Let, me ask, <clears throat> let me ask you in the form of a hypothetical question. Okay? If partially ingested pills that were determined to contain uh, both fentanyl and methamphetamine were found partially ingested in the back seat of, a squad, of the squad car and that those pills had been <clears throat> had come had the DNA of the, in, of the deceased individual on them meaning that they took them Mm -hmm. And those pills would have been in his mouth at about 218 or 2018, right? Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that you would expect the peak fentanyl respiratory depression within about five minutes? Right. I mean, obviously, it would depend on how much of it was ingested. I mean, it, just finding the pills won't tell you anything about whether any of it was ingested or some of it or anything. But if there was any amount of it ingested, yes, the peak would be five minutes. Right. And so if it happened at 2018 or 
thereabouts when the individual the time was in he was the back of the now car, on the ground mm-hmm. you would expect that peak respiratory depression to be around 2013 right 20, 2023 i'm sorry 2018 to 2023 is you're trying to really confuse me mr nelson <laughs> i'm sorry i think i can actually say it's been a long week now uh, so 2018 is the ingestion point. You would expect peak respiratory depression by 2023. Correct. Right? That's the peak, meaning that it could continue afterwards, right? Right. All right. Yeah, he is a smart ass. You also described in your direct testimony um, what you have interpreted to, to be an anoxic seizure, right? Yes. At 2024. Correct. 2421. 2024. 20, 21. 21. And that was in uh, what you uh, saw and what the jury was played was reflected in, in from Officer Lane's body camera, right? Correct. And it was the kick of the legs, right? Yes. And after that point, you can see Officer Lane hold the leg down, right? Yes. And you can see it kick up again, yes. right? Talk over each other. Sorry. A tendency to go fast. That's what you recognize based on your 46 years of being a pulmonologist and an intensivist and your experience, right? Right. I mean, obviously, there was additional information from the hand, but I mean, but the the leg was the key. Right. And... would be reasonable for a police officer to interpret that same behavior as resistance. Objection, Your Honor. Foundation of witness to talk about what's reasonable for a police officer. Now, you testified that, that was a good objection. the last breath of Mr. Floyd was at 20, 25, 16, right? Correct. Prior to that point, to all people who were there and monitoring him, he would have appeared to have been breathing, right? I didn't, I, it's just hard for me to hear. Sorry, prior to that point, yeah. it would be- He had uh, no problems hearing the other guy, by the way. Reasonable that he would appear to be breathing, right? Yes. And in fact, you showed us a segment where you could were able to count his respiratory rates. Yes. Right? And then you said that at 2035, and 06 seconds. The uh, police what, benevolence fund or whatever, the police unions fund or something is paying for Nelson, I believe. When the first air was pumped back into him. Correct. All right. Not the union, you understand, not the union itself, but a fund that, that they pay into or some shit. So it's not directly the union. That paramedics arrived at 2027 20, and 45 seconds. Yes. And so the time between when the paramedics arrived and Mr. Uh, Floyd got his first air was roughly eight minutes, almost nine minutes. Yes. Yeah. And according to timelines, the drive to the hospital is about five minutes. I'm sorry, I didn't catch the that. Were you aware that the the drive to the hospital is about five minutes? I wasn't aware, but I have no reason to dispute it. And so between 2027 and 45 seconds, when the EMTs first arrived 
and the time they got him to uh, have an air in his lungs, that was a crucial nine minutes. Yes. Uh, Your Honor, I have nothing further. Mr. Blackwell. Okay, we did miss this part. I guess we'll we'll hit this. It's not the full ten minutes. Looks like it ends in about six or seven. I didn't really want to hear from the fucking prosecution again, but okay. I guess. Dr. Tobin, just a, a few questions, just for clarification's sake. Uh, you would just ask a lot of questions about science and medicine changing, constantly changing, evolving by the nanosecond, by the millisecond. You heard all of that. Yes, I did. Um, I want to go to the period of time when Mr. Chauvin was on the back and neck of Mr. Floyd. Yes. Did you see uh, him get off of the back of Mr. Floyd by the nanosecond, by the millisecond, by any seconds in the nine minutes and 29 seconds that you saw him on? No, I did not. If you look at the five minutes and three seconds that you focused on, where, if you consider all the nanoseconds and milliseconds in the five minutes and three seconds, where was Mr. Chauvin the vast majority of that time? He was on Mr. Floyd's neck and uh, on his back and arm. Right, not constantly changing. No. Uh, now, you asked questions about what injuries were noted on autopsy. Yes. And uh, I think a uh, reference was made, there was no injury noted to the hypopharynx on autopsy. Correct. Does that make any difference to you whatsoever? None whatsoever. I wouldn't expect there to be anything found there and, and why at not? autopsy. Why not, Dr. Tobin? Because the effects on the hypopharynx are not something that is going to remain at the time of an autopsy. I mean, the type of changes that we see, say, in somebody with sleep apnea, that's not something you're going to see the following morning when you look at somebody. It's just not there. Well, there was also a reference made to the absence of bruising on the neck during autopsy. Yes. Does that make any difference to you whatsoever? No, because obviously I go to, whenever I go to church, I sit on a hard bench. I don't get bruising of my buttocks when I leave. So I wouldn't expect what? anything in terms of that. So if you have somebody, this was a static force. It's not, a, it's not as if somebody is jamming against it. So you wouldn't expect anything in the way of bruising. And scientifically, do you know of any correlation between the presence or absence of bruising on autopsy and the forces necessary to restrict breathing? No, they're totally different because it's in terms of static forces and dynamic. What about low oxygen? If somebody has uh, suffers or dies from low oxygen, yes, does that show up on autopsy? No, it does not. And the fact that it doesn't, does that mean anything to you whatsoever? It has no meaning. And why not? Because low oxygen is a functional thing, just like an arrhythmia is a functional thing. It doesn't, it doesn't leave a fingerprint on the autopsy. It's just there. It's something that happened. It's, uh, but it won't leave any fingerprint afterwards. You don't see it. But doesn't mean that the person didn't die from low oxygen. No, absolutely not. So if you take a, a, somebody and you suffocate them with a pillow, and it's very clear to you after you suffocated the person and he's dead from the pillow, you're not going to see the effects of the low oxygen. Now, you were uh, asked quite a few questions about Mr. Floyd's pre-existing health conditions. Correct. And remember, he cited a number of those. Yes. Uh, do any of those conditions have anything to do with the cause of Mr. Floyd's death 
in your professional opinion, whatsoever? None whatsoever. And uh, again, what was the cause such that those conditions don't matter? The cause yes, these, this is still all the prosecution's case. That's a good question, Lord Zenu. For those who don't know, these have all been prosecution witnesses so far, uh, and it's good for me to stop the proceedings really quick as we head towards the end and remind everybody, yes, uh, the defense hasn't gotten to present any of their case yet so far. Uh, and they're saying four to six weeks. I don't know how far down. This will be the end of the second week tomorrow. So I don't know how far down the prosecution list they are. I'll try to look into that uh, overnight. He's a low level of oxygen that caused the brain damage and caused the heart to stop. You were also asked questions. And the defense has their own experts and stuff, too. So About substances in Mr. Floyd's system. I think you were asked questions about nicotine. Remember that? Yes. He didn't die from nicotine, did he? <laughs> no. Uh, you asked questions about fentanyl and meth. Yes. Uh, any evidence that he died from meth? No, none. Uh, you were asked questions about um, whether he had ingested any fentanyl within five minutes of his time of death. Yes. Now, I, th I think you explained to us that if somebody is suffering from a fentanyl overdose, you would see a depression in the respiratory system. Yes. And, and depression means some reduction in the rate of ability to breathe. Correct. Did you see any depression in Mr. Floyd's ability to breathe whatsoever before he went unconscious? No, absolutely not. It, it was normal respiratory rate. Any evidence then that any fentanyl in the system depressed his breathing in any way whatsoever? No, and that's further borne out in the carbon dioxide. Right. Thank you, Dr. Tolkien. No further okay. questions. Anything further? Uh, two very quick questions. In terms of the carbon dioxide level, um, you testified that it was at a 96? Yep. Sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't catch. You See, testified that the carbon... Uh, look, he can never hear anything that Nelson tells him ever. The other guy doesn't have some booming voice. Carbon dioxide was at a 96? I think it was 89. 89. That's a tactic. It was also measured at 102. Do you remember? Well, that's the Vedas one. But not the arterial is the one you need to look at. And in terms of um, the ingestion of, or just generally speaking, fentanyl can also cause death as a result of low oxygen to the brain, right? But it would have to be low through respiratory depression. The question is, fentanyl can also cause... <laughs> Chad's cracking me a up. death Holy as a result of low oxygen. Well, your answer is yes, but only in part. Okay. Fair enough. Thanks. Just Briefly. One. Just one. Jeez, just let him question all night. Mr. Nelson brought up again fentanyl as a cause of death. Yes. Uh, doctor, you're familiar with the way people die from fentanyl. Yes, very. Do they or do they not go into a coma before they die? from a fentanyl overdose? Yes, they will. Was Mr. Floyd ever in a coma? No. Thank you, Dr. Tobin. Okay. Anything else? Thank you. Doctor, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, there we go. That's the testimony from today. We we got it all in, I believe, once we, once we cleared that out. Tomorrow we'll be back 10-ish or so, whatever time they start in the morning. I'll try to come on a little bit early maybe 10 or 15 minutes, uh, bring some of the stuff I saw in the overnight uh, and some reaction and some analysis uh, before we start in the morning. May or may not have another afternoon session uh, today. Right after the morning, I was so fed up 
with the morning session, and it ended like 20 minutes early. So I rushed over, saw my mom uh, for about two hours, came back, uh, and we had the afternoon session. And they had a couple breaks in between there, so we really didn't miss that much uh, and got to clean it up here at the end, what we did miss. Um, so that's it, man. We'll see you guys in the morning. Kill stream tonight. It'll probably start around 10 o'clock again because I need a little bit of extra time off to, to put the show together and stuff. So look for the kill stream around 10 p.m. Eastern, killstream.live slash show. Look for us at that same URL tomorrow morning, 1030, 10 to 1030-ish. Just look for us in the morning, basically. Uh, and we'll be doing some more court retorting. Also, the podcast feed is up. Thank you guys for the uh, monetary support today. Uh, cash app, dollar sign, uh, what is it? Dollar sign, Sunset Squad. That's the cash tag. Uh, what else? Patreon.com slash the Ralph Retort, Subscribestar.com slash the Ralph Retort, Killstream.live slash entropy, Killstream.live slash shop. You can get shirts, you can do all that shit. We will put out a court retort shirt. I'll try to get something up this weekend. Uh, court retort number eight, the one from this morning, is already up on the podcast feed and it's up on Odyssey. Let me link the podcast feed in these uh, chats before you go. Uh, it's only up on Anchor and Spotify so far. Uh, but hopefully that'll change within the next few days. Uh, there's the podcast feed right there uh, on Trovo, and I'll get it put in YouTube as well. I think that's about it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up, get out of here. Let me hit that music. Where is that music? There it is. Good night. Well, good evening. I don't know. Oh, that's the Yeah, okay. We're playing it for the outro, too. Okay, good. Oh, Lord Aragon, get to the sub, GA1776, thank you, thank you all for the support, it's been fun doing the core retort, see you on the kill stream. Subscribe star.com slash the route for torch. See you later.